Welcome to Far Realms Radio. I'm Skyler. And I'm Justin. This is our podcast of many things. Where we give you eldritch advice to improve your Dungeons and Dragons games. Let's dive in. This week, we are going to talk about character creation, and I think that we've talked a lot about session zero, sort of game setup, and how you do all of the things that you prep from a DM's perspective, but I think it's useful to look at the player's perspective, too, for what does character creation entail? How do you make a character that you're going to enjoy? How do you make a character that will last you for a while, especially multiple levels? Uh, maybe even, you know, in the in the perfect fantasy, like the game goes from 1 to 20, right? So I think that is a stated kind of temptation. Can you build a character? Can you get one to level 20? And it's hard. It's not easy. Almost no one ever gets there, though. It's rare. It's really rare to get to level 20. I think it's that kind of goading incentive. It's like the Tarrasque, right? I mean, I think statistically most campaigns, most people get to maybe like 11, you know, at the highest. Most of the adventures that you can buy that's that would the, take you there can the buy like 15, maybe. Math kind of jumps the shark at 11. 18, you know. fifth edition. Yeah, I mean, and if you look at other systems too, or historically like a third edition or Pathfinder even, they, like they don't take you generally above 18. They kind of cap out there. And there are vanishingly few adventures yeah, you never that see are adventures for 17 plus. That are 17 plus, exactly. Yeah, it's super rare. It's super rare. I mean, and there is a very vocal, of course, group on the internet that's like we want an epic level adventure group and i am definitely part of that group i'm like part of the ones like i want at least something that's like hey we gave some serious hardcore thought to what does it look like if you were going to do straight up captain marvel i guess style super powered high level with wish spells and craziness you know like come on we're it's all imagination i I mean we're we used to have it so i think that's one of the reasons we want to have it again is we you know we had it for third edition got we saw it in pathfinder and for people who are able to play those characters for a long time and get all the way to level 20, a lot of the time they want to continue on that character's journey. And it's you an can investment. do that, but it can be frustrating when you don't feel like there's a lot of advancement left. Yeah. It's more work on the DM's part, too, because they're now having to kind of create content and challenges that they either have to scale up or just make ridiculous. So today I think we want to talk about what it is that makes an effective character. How do you make a character that lasts you a while? Uh, what are some of the things that you can do when you get stuck with a character that you've made? Uh, and uh, what are the things that you can do when you're making a character that are going to pay off later in, in dividends? So from that perspective, I guess uh, maybe we can start with when you're building a character, what is the first question that you should ask of yourself, do you think? I think it's why are you building this character? Like, what are you building them to be? A lot of the time we find ourselves building the best characters statistically or the most unique character in a certain way, maybe playing against type. And that can be fun. But I think a lot of us who have played a lot of characters have noticed that sometimes it's hit or miss. We don't enjoy all of our characters for one reason or another. And I think that's why it pays off to talk about what kind of character can you develop that's going to be the most fun for you, that's going to help you get the most out of the game. Yeah. 
I mean, I've definitely made characters that I get to like level five and I'm like, you know, I'm kind of bored of this character and I don't see any way to make it not boring. And maybe we should just kill the character, which is dramatic. You know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, reset button. Right. I mean, the nice thing about D and D is that you can do that, especially if you have a, a DM or a Definitely. group that is okay with that. And sometimes that actually cool, turns into a cool plot point, or your character has this epic death that the party wants to avenge. I have definitely and, checked out of Final Fantasy games because the characters were so irritating that I and oh, I've definitely done that in RPGs as well <laughs> like many I'm, times. I'm done with this. You know, not all of them, but some of them. Like, no, these characters are the worst, and I can't change it. A, a game has to be really good, like. Ocarina of Time with Navi. Listen, hey, listen. Oh man, that the game oh. is so good. You just put up with it. You just mute it. Just put it on mute. <laughs> the music game, base game on mute, it doesn't work as well in D and D. You know, like I'm just gonna mute all the other players. <laughs> no, that's not not gonna fly. So, so I think that's something to keep in mind. Is like, kind of what are you, what approach are you taking to this? Are you like on a kick of like, oh, I want to build the most powerful wizard ever? Or are you more looking at, like, how can I make a character that's going to be enjoyable to play regardless of kind of what situation I'm in? Yeah, and I think that there are really two buckets of gameplay that you can talk about, sort of format of play style that D&D supports. And we're generalizing here very broadly, but, you know, there's the kind of play that is short format, and then there's the kind of play that's long format, and the kind of character that you build for each of them is not the same, you know? And to, to take it to maybe the extreme, just to elucidate the point, for, short format is is like a convention game, you know? You're talking about, this is one to three games maybe, you know? It's very quick, and the kind of character you're going to build for that is definitely not the same one that you're going to build for a long one, which is a game like a campaign that you've sunk into for months or maybe a year or more with with some people that follow a story. And I think part of that is just sort of the necessity of when you show up at a table, you know, like when you show up at a party and you're meeting a bunch of people that you don't know, you kick up certain parts of your personality, like this is who I am, I'm introduce myself like this person. The same is true of the characters that you make, right? So if you are building for a convention game, you might make some choices or like a one or one to three shot that you wouldn't make if you wanted to sink into the character. Here's a classic example. I'm going to make a fighter. And I'm going to give him super strength for his short game, but I'm going to totally dump all my int, whiz, and cha, which I wouldn't do for a long-term game. Uh, but I'm going to make him like eights or less, all of them, because I don't care. It's low stakes. I'm going to smashy, smashy for like maybe four to 12 hours total. And then that's my level of commitment, you know, and that works really well for that. I mean, but, there's benefits to having that low level of commitment in that you can test out characters you might norm- normally play like the the fighter who's just right, right. dumb as a rock or the super glass cannon wizard and it also is nice for if you want to play a character that's a little more gag focused or one-dimensional definitely a lot of us fall prey to make making a joke character yeah. here and there and one shots are really the place to do that and even though you know a lot of the time one shots kind of feel to experienced players like you're like okay that was cool, I guess. I'd rather be in a campaign. Ho-hum. The, the nice thing is it, it does kind of help you identify what kind of character you want to play in the long term by just testing out different things and seeing totally how agree. it sticks yeah. or realizing like, oh my God, I actually really love playing barbarians. Why have I been playing a wizard all this whole time? <laughs> right. <laughs> so you never know. And so I think that is one of the benefits to one shots. And that's like when we talked about in our session zero, if you're playing with a new group, it's really nice to do a couple one shots first or like a mini campaign just to see like what, what gels. And in short-term play, because you, you know, 
a lot of the time the premise is more set, like you're jumping, it's more sometimes in more media res or, you know, you're coming in, your characters know each other. They're part yeah. of a, an elite squad, whatever. Right. And time is short, so we have to just get and to so it. So it's more linear. It's, it's less sandboxy and you really don't have to worry about that character buy-in because your character is kind of bought in for you by the premise of the one shot in most cases. Now, I'm always biased toward longer games, and it's just, I guess, a, Me too. a thing I prefer. Like, if I can get it, you know, I, I think that there's more reward out of a longer game. That's just personal preference based on my experience. Nothing against convention games. I've had really quite good ones, but uh, that's always what I optimize for. You know, how to find a way that I can build a character as a player that's going to feed me and the group, maybe, for n period of time, for an indeterminate length, Right. And that means that gags are going to play out sooner rather than later. So, you know, if you've built a gag character, then you're likely to run afoul of, uh, you know, I'm tired of this gag and the joke is worn off. And I mean, even I South Park got tired of killing Kenny at a certain point. Right, right, exactly. And they're far more creative than I they am. They got way more mileage and budget than all of our D&D games, even Matt Mercer's, I guarantee you. <laughs> <laughs> so I think... Maybe we can talk a little bit about what deepening a character looks like as we make a character. And I think there are two broad areas that we might deepen a character if we're looking at the long term, you know, for how you might balance it, right? And then this is this is back to this classic thing that we talk about, right? The game <laughs> falls into these two categories of role play or role play, right? R-O-L-L or R-O-L-E. And and you can call that like role play or crunch, you know? It's it's like, are you in it for more of the crunch, and then how do you scale that? Or are you in it for more of the role play, and then how do you scale that? And I'm going to say the uh, thing you're going to hate, uh, listeners and otherwise, which is both. Obviously, you want both. If you're doing your job right, you want both, you know? So how do you, how do you get that? Yeah, right? right. I think this is one of the few places where I do like to point to the three pillars of D&D that are traditionally combat, uh, social interaction, or what we normally refer to as role play, and exploration, which is the the forgotten one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think when we're looking at a character, instead of just looking at crunch and role play, I think it's important to look like I'm going to run into each of those situations quite frequently in a game of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, I want to make sure my character is kind of somewhat equipped to actually interact or do something in those pillars. I think a lot of us who have played like a character who's like just really bad in social situations. Unless you're getting good at the role playing that character's personality, sometimes you're like, well, I just, I'm kind of useless here. If I try to make a persuade or something, it may be funny, but will probably fail. And like sometimes it's actually better because it's funny when you fail. <laughs> um, that part that, you know, the barbarian with bad manners is a classic stereotype for a reason. I mean, like, like I said before, do the obvious thing, right? Nine times out of 10, exactly. it's obvious and 10, 10 times the 10th time it's brilliant, you know? So yeah, I think that's, it's one of the things that kind of like, instead of just looking at the crunch and role play, cause that's very much when you sit down to look at your character sheet, you're going to have the crunch. It's very clear cause it's number and systematic based. And then you're going to have like kind of more of the role play part. Mm -hmm. And there's mm -hmm. boxes for that too. And I think it's really going to, this is this approach is going to differ by how a player approaches the game and kind of their preferences. Um, and I think, you know, no one's super 100% consistent. I think we've all made a character based on like, oh my gosh, I want to play this class. Or we've made a character based on, I want to play a character that is really stupid or mute or some weird character quirk. Yeah, that, really outside the box. That, you know, yeah, push you know, the boundaries something of what the a little, we, you know, when you're exploring character creation, uh, you'll... My character Find is a monk who has no hands. He only fights with his feet. Exactly. All different kind of starting points. Um, but for you, because you've created a lot of characters in your time, what where do you like to start looking at the crunch versus the role play? Like, what's your 
kind of where do you start All right, with so, characters? I don't know. I mean, I have my process, and my process is definitely informed by me. You know, I think everybody's is, and I think there's no one true way. But, but I think that if there's a truth amongst all players in when they make pl- any kind of character, it's that the character, as strange as they might be, as odd or different from ourselves as they might be, they come from a kernel of ourselves, right? So when we make a character, you know, on one shallow level, there's, I want to have something to do at the table. I want to have something to do during the game. I want to be able to roll dice and participate, right? That's the most base level. And then above that, there's, I want to have something that feels like it can engage with the world, like it can take agency and action, like not just like it has something that I can do, I can roll dice, I can roll saves, I can make attacks, but but I can actually affect things, you know, that I can affect the story, I can have impact on the world in the choices that I make. And that's both through the spells I pick and use, that's through the might that I have and how I kill bad guys and the reputation I get from that maybe, and even just how I show up maybe at a bar and can charm everybody there because of my high skills, whatever it is. But the third thing I think is also that since the character is a reflection of us, there's some component in the character that is that's something that we want to explore more in ourselves, right? It's something that we found in us that we said, you know, this is interesting. I, I want to explore this. Um, maybe it's a trade-off. I want to play a fighter who was a soldier who lost his family. Or I want to play a rogue who has no ethics but is a chosen one for an assassin's guild. Or I want to play a wizard who wants to find the alchemist stone. You know, and these are these are things that come out, out of us, all of us, our characters do. Uh, and I come at this perspective, of course, from an actor's perspective, like, look, when you dig into a character role, you have to find in you the part of that character that is real. And what's nice about D&D is that it gives you the opportunity to make that character from parts of you. So you don't have to deal with whatever the author of the script wanted. You just have to like talk to the DM, who is a very generous and very easygoing kind of director. You know, like <laughs> they are not, they're not nearly as demanding as any other kind of director would be. They're just like, yeah, let's play the game. You know, okay. that's some cool dice you have. Oh, you're going to play a warlock who worships this fiend? Cool. You know, ah, oh, well, maybe there's this plot hook. It's it's way. You don't have any stakes. shareholders to appease. Yeah, or an audience <laughs> to worry about. You know, you don't have to stand up on stage and there's be no like. Review of the game coming right, out. Unless or, I mean, unless you're like critical role, and then whew, that's more pressure. Well, but that by their own choice. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but I think that the, the 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 point of this is that like these are these are hierarchical. You know, there's the base level of engaging with the game in a kind of board game sense. How do you take action in the game? How do you build a character that won't get boring as you play more of the board game? And then there's I think, I think there's another level of it, which is how do you play a character that not only won't get boring because you have stuff to do, but can engage with other players, both at the table and NPCs in the world to affect the world, you know, so it can kind of change the ways in which the board game works. And then there's the, the highest level of it, which is the hardest to get to and requires, I think, the most investment in the character, which is how do you scratch whatever that itch is at the kernel of that character that you made answer that question explore that part of yourself or about humanity or whatever it is you know that that is part of you that comes from your own question and oftentimes when i make a character like that i don't know maybe how to say it in an eloquent way that's why i'm making the character i want to explore comes out this through play place. right you have to kind of find it exploring through play a little bit but but i think that it's easy to miss that you know because dnd is so many things you know and it can very be very casual a lot of times but every time we make a character you know be it 
uh, a character who wants to run away because they're kind of cowardly and mistrusting, or somebody who's brash and uh, is always right and always knows the answer. And these are all you know compatible in games that we play. How how did these relate to ourselves? What are these questions? You know, I mean, in one of the games we're playing, one of the characters is playing a, a paladin who is a uh, a facsimile of Donald Trump. Right. So, you know, clearly that player is exploring. He always thinks he's right. He always thinks he's right. He knows it, in fact. And and he's exploring something for himself. He has the best opinions. So, like, fine. (laughs) Great. And I only have one thing I would say for DMs in this whole part, which is, dude, let the player do whatever the player is going to do and support it how you can. Full stop. That's the end of it. You know? And that's... I mean, unless they're stepping on, you know, their players' toes yeah, or but ruining the game. That's everybody at the table's but, responsibility but yeah. to manage. It's not just the DM's part responsibility. Of the player contract. Right. That's every all the players show up, we're playing a game together, you know, of course, you know, and you don't want to make a character that, well, I want to explore this deep dark edgelord bullshit, and it's gonna step all over your character because I'm a half vampire son of Dracula with a dark sword coming for your soul. And they're like some I don't know, fairy. Just like a druid. Yeah, sure. Just Stoner like, druid. I don't want to hurt animals. Stoner druid. I'm like, hey, I'm just gonna smoke my pipe here, bro. <laughs> anyway, so you know, I, I I I guess I probably beat that horse now to to the point, but I think that that last part of it comes from us is the is the the key takeaway from this. See, that's that's interesting because my approach is like completely the opposite in that instead of like kind of looking within to an aspect of a character that I'd like to play, I take of it more less of like an approach from an acting perspective and more of I kind of latch on to an idea or a concept or a mechanic that I find is interesting. Mm-hmm. And, then, you know, a lot of the time inspiration, you'll hear people talk about this when they're coming up with like character concepts, comes from other media, yeah. books you've read, TV shows you've watched, things like that. Um, you know, if you're running games as a DM, you're used to doing that for your NPCs. Uh, it's something that you kind of get used to a process of doing. And sometimes I think the challenge is if you're a forever DM, like I have been for most of my life, (laughs) you end up making characters that would be great NPCs, but perhaps they're a little one-dimensional or gimmicky as PCs. Yeah. Um, And it's something that I have definitely fallen prey to myself and I'm trying to get better at doing is I'm honestly better at making an NPC a lot of the time than I am making a PC. Well, what's the difference in your opinion, right? If you're talking about, and I agree. I mean, ideally in a perfect world, you know, they're both just as fleshed out and No, but there's equal. a clear difference, right? There are some characters that I've made them like, this is a really interesting NPC that I would not want to play for a while, yes. but I like to run as a DM versus, and, and I've made those characters as players and then discarded them. Yeah. Versus characters that are distinctly memorable, that I love so much, that I've explored so thoroughly that even when I'm running games, I bring them back in as NPCs because they have complicated parts. That I mean, I'm those like, are the best NPCs, the ones that are more the most fleshed out and yeah, believable. Yeah. Um, but so say, what's, what's the NPCs difference there? can also get away with being a little more gimmicky or one-dimensional just because they're not going to have as much screen time. Just like, you know, in other media, you watch TV or something, you know, you're going to have characters that are more kind of like a gag sideshow character that, you know... It's not going to be in the main plot line all the time. I mean, I think that just as a sidebar while we're talking about it, using TV characters or book characters as a template for a character you make is a really great idea with one caveat, right? If you're going to do it, you should pick the character that's maybe the protagonist or is through all the seasons of the show. This is a great point. You know, it's really easy to latch onto characters in books that we find fascinating or, or shows that we watch that are really interesting and then make a character version of that. But... You know, for instance, if you make a character based off of Bronn, the char- the mercenary from Game of Thrones, who's like a supporting character, and he's my favorite, 
of all of the characters, even though he's a supporting character, he's doesn't have less screen time, you know? So he's not a really deep character, even though the parts that he is there are interesting. So he's maybe a poor choice, you know? Like if you're going to pick a, if you're going to crib from somewhere else, you, you probably want to pick somebody that has a character arc and then think about maybe how that arc that you're going to tell is not the same as the one that they told. I think that's a good point because like you're making an adventurer. You're not making someone who's a wallflower. It's, it has to be right. a character that's going to be, you know, willing to go out and do things and have some kind of motivational drive to do that. Right. Uh, so not every character you find in other media like is going to be a good character in a RPG tabletop game. That's for sure. And a lot of the time, part of it is because I think we come in with too much, too much of the character done beforehand. If we're taking it from other media, sometimes mm-hmm. like almost too much of that. In terms of that, we don't have anywhere to grow and go with that character because we almost know that character's story already. And you're like, oh, I kind of want to take my character down that same path. But when you play D&D, it's not like uh, writing. You don't have a narrative where you can just kind of do that. It's a little bit more challenging because there's more randomness. You know, things come out and play more. Um, I used to do a lot of forum RP. And in that, mm-hmm. you can talk about the people with the people you're RPing with and say, hey, I want to take the character in this direction. I want to do this. And it's almost like you're writing a script together and that you can do that. You know, it's like right. it's, it's more right. of cooperative writing. Whereas in Dungeons and Dragons, if that dice rolls a certain way, you're like, oh, okay, well, now I have one arm, so I I, I got to I got to <laughs> adapt. Yes, you know. Yes. So there's I think that's part of it is that you don't know what's going to happen as much. So I think leaving a little bit of that to be discovered is a really good practice. If you're pulling inspiration from other places, that's why I think looking at tropes is good because tropes is kind of a step back. Or you can kind of look what tropes what tropes make this character who they are, and which of those do I like? What attracts me to that? Totally. And if you're looking at like. Are you asking the question, well, tropes? Like, how do I find tropes? What are tropes? You know, I mean, you in, can Google TVE tropes, character I was about tropes, to say, and go you'll to get a huge TVtropes.org is yes. the best place to start, and you will find a rabbit hole there that will lead you down hours of reading. Like, it's anyway, I totally agree. So, okay, when you're creating a character, we talked about this a little bit, you know. We got pretty esoteric there. We did. We got in, into the sort of depths of, like, what characters could be and what they serve. The philosophy. And how they fit with other characters. But from a maybe a very tactical, very personal level, when you are coming up with a new idea for a character, where do you start? What is it that you start with for a concept, for inspiration? What is it that you begin with, the very kernel of the starting point? So, me personally, what I like to do is I will look for a character in some kind of media that I find interesting. And then the first thing I will do is I'll ask myself is, why do I find this character interesting? Why do I like this character? Maybe I check out some some tropes uh, by looking them up. Maybe I just compare and contrast it to a couple different characters. Mm-hmm. And I kind of try to identify what about this character is drawing me to it. Like, what what is the inspiring bits of this character that I can kind of take away and synthesize into something else? Uh, so I like to do that. And for me, you know, usually you're starting with like race, class, and background. Um, my my best characters I find come when I have an idea of who the character is as a person mm. and what they believe, what their motivations are. Mm-hmm. For me, characters are really, really defined by what they believe because what you believe really enforces, like, informs all of your actions that you take. It's your worldview, mm-hmm. and you're going to act accordingly usually to your worldview. So I kind of start there in terms if you know when I'm doing well with character creation right. I'm like who is this character what's important to them my most recent character is a character that serves the raven queen so it's, he's very faith focused and religious focused and that's a big part of the character 
so I kind of started from there, whereas the character before that I did that didn't work out so well, I just latched onto some mechanics and I tried to build it out of that. I mean, mechanics are an easy way to latch in, but they, they kind of they don't often play out if it's sometimes, the only thing you got, you know, right? you, you go for that mechanic and a character organically comes out of it and it mm-hmm. all comes together. You mm-hmm. just don't know. Um, but for me, I like to look for motivation in other forms first of different examples of characters. Um, and one thing I do like to do that helps is I will go on to Pinterest. I I, re- I resisted making a Pinterest account for a long time, Pinterest, but it's so really? good for D and D. There's Pinterest. so much. It's where all the character art is now. So it's, it's hard like, to find. It's like the new Elf. It's become yes, the it's new become, Deviant it's been art. Very hard to find all the good character image repositories. Like so many have gone down. And Deviant art is now kind of porny, you know. It's yeah, you know, you don't always want to see the search results. <laughs> so you're like, I'm glad there's an, a not safe for work block on that. I don't want to know what it is, <laughs> and. So I'll look for those and kind of go with that. That's where I like to start. Yeah, I think for me, it, it really it's one of two things I start with for character creation. I either find a character in some media, like you know, maybe let's look at one of the Marvel movies. You know, some That's character, maybe maybe Winter Soldier. And I'm like, Thor is one that people always do. I like Winter Soldier. I want to play a character like Winter Soldier. I really like where they went with Winter Soldier or Black Panther. Like I really like Black Panther, except I don't want to play the Marvel version. I want to play my version in this story. You know, so same basic attitude, same basic concept, but he's not the king of Wakanda. He's like a guy. And uh, he's a guy <laughs> he's from a guy named that town. Yeah, and maybe maybe he has some royal blood, but in this story, you know, it's not that it's not the Marvel story. Yeah. This is a story about this character who uh, doesn't have those trappings, and where does it go, and where and does, does it that lead? change who he is? You know, but maybe I still use that character yeah, as a model. You can still use little bits here and there. I mean, the other way I do it is it's it's a similar kind of thing. I mean. For me, they are the same, but for I can see how they'd be different for other people. I look in myself, and I'll pick a part of myself that relates to a character in, in cinema. Like, why do I like Black Panther? Why do I like Winter Soldier? What is it I like about Steve Rogers? You know, there's something very clearly I like about him or Tony Stark, just as obvious examples. And I find like, oh, I like Tony Stark because he's clever and he's kind of sassy. You know, he's like smart, but he's he's a little bit of a jerk, you know? And then I'll take that in me, the part of me that I like, and make a character out of that, whatever it looks like. Maybe he's not anything like skills like Tony Stark is, but he has similar attitude. And then I and I lean into that and use that as the fuel for a new character. You know, so it's either it's either like some part of myself or it's some part of a character that I, I want to explore more of as a colonel, you know, but there has to be some kind of colonel. And and yeah. it very seldom starts with the straight up mechanics. Although I can't say that it's not mechanics entirely, because sometimes in this game, it's one of the things I love about they, they it. There need to are, be cohesive. There are mechanics that also blend with story, which can I, be inspiring, I mean, too. Ideally, the mechanics and the flavor kind of come together to give you the experience. Like, they, they should be cohesive. Like, you know, that power attack should feel powerful. Yeah, or or even, I mean, yes, definitely. And there's also, I think, some some real gold to be found in contrast. So, for instance... Let's say I know that in the world, you know, there are dragonborn and they're going to pick one color of a dragon, yada, yada. So maybe we look at that and say, what happens if I play a black dragonborn paladin, right? Black dragons tend to be evil. Paladins tend to be good. There's an inherent contrast there. That seems interesting to explore or vice versa. What happens if I play a gold dragon, lawful good rogue who's going to be an assassin, 
You right. know, who is this character? This is a clear you contrast, know, you know. And, you're and clearly playing against type a little bit. So right. it's like, how far do I take that? Yeah, I mean, where, where does it become hard? Where does it break the verisimilitude a little too much? That's, that's up to to me as the yeah. player, I think, to to figure out the gradations and to make sure that I don't fall into some sort of shallow stereotype. But but that's where I start. You know, I look for those either captivating things about a character I saw in some media that didn't go away. I want to go with it and I want to explore this new route. Yes, or that's a good one. Or I look for a contrast that I want to explore and see where the gray area is between these two extremes. And I do that a lot for NPCs too, you know. Definitely. Like I'll be like, oh, okay, I'm going to take Indiana Jones, change like the age, the gender, and the race, and a couple other things, but he's still very, very, the soul of Harrison same, same. Ford. Same, same, same. Totally. Um, so once I have that seed kind of planted, you know, and I kind of have a concept in my head of like who this character is, what they do or what they believe, like it's kind of a seed that I have to mull over over a while. Like it takes me a lot of like just pondering about it over time. Mm. And the next thing that I like to do is just get the mechanics out of the way. Mm. It, I have this like anxiety of the mechanics that like once I have the mechanics set, I feel like I can focus more on like i have those nuts and bolts are good and now i can deal with the trappings you know i can put the paint mm. the coat of paint on the on the vehicle now that it runs now uh, that internally. you have the stats worked out and yeah I, I just like to make sure that that's squared away and, and that those stats are going to kind of like like those stats are going to inform kind of what i can do to a degree right you know so i like knowing what those are because i'm like okay okay i'm really weak I, like my strength is really low cool that's going to be a part of the character he's a right. frail wizard i can play into that and that's why i like to get the stats and the mechanics out of the way okay race like line. once i have that seed <laughs> i didn't say anything about hourglass size or golden skin okay <laughs> just frail um and so I, I like to get the rolling and get all of that down on the paper because i feel like once i get that out there on the paper i'm kind of free to be like okay what can i do with what i've just written down here like where can i take this that it would be interesting yeah yeah, totally. I just like to get that out of the way. Uh, would you say, though, that when you're starting to look at a character, you're going to make a character, do you start with a mechanic that you pick? You're like, I want to explore this mechanic, or is it an idea that you crib from somewhere sometimes. else? Or like, what is it? I think sometimes it is, and sometimes that can be good, and sometimes that can be bad. Um, sometimes it's bad because it ends up being like, oh, I want to try that out. And just like trying out a gimmicky character or joke character, it gets old quickly. And you're like, okay, I'm overcasting fireball. I just don't want to be so frail anymore. Right. You know, it just kind of depends there. I've had characters where I wanted to try a mechanic that turned out really fun that I really enjoyed. Right. Uh, like my, I made a Sun Soul Monk in 5e that I really enjoyed. And it was just to try out the Sun Soul Monk. It was great. I really loved the key blasts. And most recently, I, I made an alchemist goblin, and I really just wanted to try out a alchemist homebrew class right. that focused on grafting monster parts onto itself, a la Dr. Frankenstein, uh, which was fascinating and really, really fun mechanically, but the way I wrote the character did not make him a good adventurer in that he was a goblin whose father was murdered by adventurers, so he hated adventurers. And I was... It's an example of playing way too hard against type, and I totally shot myself in the foot, and it got to a point where I, I love the character. He's fun to play, a little one-dimensional sometimes, but I couldn't take it anywhere, and I couldn't really give much value to the party in the way that I wanted to, mm. and it also made it hard because he had this, you know, this agenda of wanting to, you know, make his own dungeon and take out adventurers. That it didn't help that he was evil. It, it, it didn't help that he was evil. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Uh <laughs> Being an evil goblin alchemist, maybe. But 
I found myself just kind of bored playing that character because it felt one dimensional and I didn't feel like I had anywhere to go. I mean, and I, I, that's probably because I just I looked at the mechanics too hard and less at who is this character and what what do they believe? I mean, what do they want? I only have two things to say about this. I think <clears throat> one thing I want to say is that no character has to take you to level 20, right? I agree. Sometimes like you don't character. characters meant to die at level six. And that's part of the game. Like, it's OK. That's that's one of the great things I actually really like about this game. And it, it's maybe this is a controversial thing to say, because not all the players I've played with have agreed with me over the years on that's this. That's true. Some people but get really attached. They do. They really feel very they, strongly about it. They but take that character from one to 15. One of the things I like about this game that's really quite powerful, in my opinion, is that there is very little cost for character death, right? The character, and that can be a metaphoric death, like an exit of the story. It can be a literal death in the story. You know, whatever it is, the character is over as it was and a new one enters. And it's up to us to make sure that that makes sense. It's up to us to decide how much we care. You know, like it's, it's, we are in control of the whole people at the, at the table of that. And that's, I haven't encountered anything quite like that in any other game that I've played. So it's it's unique in that regard. I've never played another game where when a fictional character dies, whether it's an NPC or a PC, people at the table are emotionally distraught. Like they legitimately feel like as if they've lost something or someone that they know. Yeah, I mean, it's like Wash dies in Serenity and it's at your table and you told the story and we are all like totally upset. Sorry, deep cuts. <laughs> anyway, uh <laughs> The other flip side of that, though, one of the first games I ever ran, and I often look back at this as just, I guess, a, either a lucky stroke and for, to think about and maybe meditate on. I'm not sure. One of my buddies, we were it was early in days of of D and D, so second edition, you know, like way back machine, and he was new to it. He didn't know <clears throat> he didn't know how to play the game. He didn't really want to learn all the crunchy mechanics. wasn't so much for him, but he wanted to play and he wanted to be a wizard, but he didn't want to get complicated. So, you know, one of my other friends, one of the players was like, that's fine. Just take fireball and then you can be like a fighter who just blasts things all the time. And he leaned into that hard. So, you know, after some levels, by the time he was level 10 or 12 or something, he basically could do fireball enough times that it was effectively at will. You know, like it's just like fireball, 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 fireball. What's the most bland, one-dimensional elf wizard fireball character? But he loved it. He loved it, but he didn't love it because it was blasty. He didn't love it because it was a very. He did a very good job at building that mechanic. He loved it because, in that case, that character became so simple that he could explore other stuff out of it. You know, he didn't have to think about anymore what the character would do like he he nailed okay this character is all about he's a wizard he does fireball he's a fighter with magic that's his whole shtick that's his thing fireball boom fireball boom fireball boom and that meant that any any other situation that didn't call for that was interesting to him you know that's a great point that's a it's an interesting way of looking at a character in that the flaws are really the benefits. He got the most mileage out of that character out of any of the characters he would subsequently play in the, in the, in the following decade. And I, I think that where I am about that now, I think back often on that, and he played him for a long time, you know, but it's it, it fits into what the directing teacher I had in college taught me, which is within the box, there is structure and also freedom, right? If you have bounds and you have rules and you have some guidelines for your character. Discipline is freedom. Then you can do all kinds of stuff because you know what's quantified, you know? And so when you explore something else, it gets really interesting. So uh, anyway, we got a little abstract here about characters, but I think I wanted to make that point, if only for the, the fireball wizard, because it doesn't have to be that you have to have a deeply complicated character to get 
depth out of it, right? It's a great point. You, you, you can find nuance just in how you play the character and yes. give them personality. You can yes. really you could build the simplest character mechanically and make it insanely memorable and awesome just by how you play that character. So what do you look for as a DM in players? When when players in a player character in a, in a character, you know, I like when they when they make the character, when they make their background, when they're doing the whole thing, what is it that you are looking for? I mean, first of all, you look for the red flags of like the murder hoboing dark loner character, yes, you, you yes. know, or the extreme in max. I kid, but what I tend to look at as like for me when I'm kind of like in a session zero, I'm trying to get an idea of who everyone's playing, who is this party of people. The first thing I kind of look at is not to use the the game specific term for this, but the character's archetype. And by that, I mean kind of the combination of the race, class, and background. Um, in fifth edition, we kind of have this this like uh, three point archetype, which we have those three things that kind of define the character, you know, um, and it's it's changed over the years. Now we have background added to it, but I mm -hmm. think that's good. That gives mm -hmm. you a, a nice bit there. Um, because you kind of have like, it's like three parts. You have a beginning, a middle and an end, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have the race that you're born into, you have the background that you've worked through and now mm -hmm. you're taking this class cause you know, you're now level one cleric or whatever. And that's where you're starting. So you kind of have that three part archetype, right? Um, so it's easy to gleam. Like you can look and be like, okay, this place is Christian's playing a caster. This player is playing a gish. This guy is uh, very clearly very tanky. Mm -hmm. Um, so you can kind of get that archetype pretty quick by looking at it. So I like to look at that just to kind of get an idea of what archetype everybody's playing. Um, and then the next thing is really the character buy-in or the hook and not for the whole, just like for that particular session that we're going to run. And that may be like, how do you guys know each other? Or how did you get involved in this war? Or why are you in this tomb? Or maybe I have a reason as a DM, you know, who knows? Maybe like you guys all popped out of a time portal. Uh, you don't know each other. Right. Go, right? right? It could be something like that. Even right. they, maybe they don't know each other. And that's like, those are kind of the main two that you need to know right away. To, like, especially if you want to get playing in that session zero. The other one, you're kind of going to get it over time from having sessions, maybe looking at that, that character's sheet every now and then. And that's kind of the character's long-term goals or motivations or agenda, how that fits into the campaign. Some players are going to come in knowing what that is. You know, maybe they're making a character that's like Goku and he's like a monk and he's like, I want to be the greatest martial artist who's ever lived. I'll right. fight anybody. Right. You know, and that's, that's great as a damn, you can work with that. Work with. <laughs> specific, but vague. It's perfect. You know, they're not, you know what they're going to do a lot of the time. Um, and that's knowing the long term, you know, you don't get that right away. Sometimes you'll see that in play and you'll kind of like and the character may learn the player may learn that about their character as they play it. Yeah, I think the the key thing I look for, I mean, obviously, right, like red flags, you know, are they going to die real fast? Did they make a murder hobo? Whatever it might look like, you know, but the the most important thing I, I think I look for, it's it's a little more abstract. It's does the character that they made have a sense of inertia and motion? Does it feel like the character is going somewhere to do something? Do they have an agenda? Do they have goals? Are they trying to chase them, right? And I say this from the perspective of if I'm going to start my story, Imidia Res, in the middle of things, right? And this character is in the middle of things. What's the first thing they're going to do? It's Let's say it's our TV show. It's the opening scene, episode one. What's happening? It's going to grip everybody's attention right now. What's happening that that character is doing that we're going to watch right now? Do I have a sense when the 
player is telling me about their character that this character has inertia. And I'll give you an example of one that does and one that doesn't. A character that has inertia, a scholar who got fed up with his master's limitations, decided to leave the master's school to pursue his own knowledge and is willing to cross a few lines to get there. One line, boom. The opposite of that, a scholar who's in his master's tutelage, who has been instructed by his master to go seek more knowledge, but is waiting for his master to promote him to the next level, right? The difference there is, one, the character took agency and took responsibility for themselves and decided to have inertia and be the driving force for the change in their lives, whatever is next. The other, they put it on some external character, not them. Which I think is a mistake. I think it can work sometimes in the right campaign setting. Yeah, maybe if the like DM if is willing like, to like push you. Well, also if it's like you're, you know, you're the knights and it's the lord of the land, and he's like, I need you to go do this for me, and but, I'll give you a keep. Sure, when you but become level seven. I, I'm the knight, and I want to serve my lord the best that I yeah, possibly can. And, and That's the that, inertia, right? That's like yeah, the the motion exactly. the character has. They I, have a drive in and of themselves. You know, it's it's this difference between I'm playing a passive character that gets prodded into things versus I'm playing a character duty on who prods things. Yeah. And that, the, the latter, is what makes, I think, a meaty character that's interesting. And also, part of why I look for that motion is because as a DM, it's easy to lead a character that has that kind of motion into a variety of things that I want to lead them into toward the story's end. And if I can lead them from one thing and then to another thing, then I can... I can almost guarantee that they're not going to get bored because that means that we can continue to explore different kinds of things and have this conversation as opposed to if it's more passive and they expect to be prodded, that means I'm going to be doing a lot of work as the DM and they are basically going to be dissatisfied most of the time because, oh, um, I got prodded again to do this. I don't know if I want to. Maybe I'll just say no. Right. It's, it's. When things are people's ideas, they like to do them so much more, especially like little kids. You know, you tell them to do something and they're like, oh, definitely. No. But if it was their idea, it's They're oh, all it's fantastic. In. We're doing it. It's, totally it's the coolest home. thing in the world. Right. It's it's part of that. And I think as a DM, you know, looking at that from a DM perspective, it, it really helps if the DM likes your character. Yes, it does. It <laughs> and, does. I mean, because I think as a DM, one of my favorite pieces of advice, which I believe comes from Dungeon World, is to kind of be a fan of the characters in a sense. And that, you know, I, I'm not going to, like, make sure you don't die. But for me, it's kind of like watching an anime or something. I really relate a lot of the time being, like, a DM to kind of, like, watching an episode of an, an anime or, a, like, a superhero team kind of unfold in that you have all these characters and you kind of like them in different ways and, like, you don't know, you don't know what's going to happen. There's a story that's going right. to happen. And it's that you don't know what's going to happen but you know the character's aspect. Yeah. That allows you to kind of be a fan of that character. Um, and I think as a DM, that's a, it's a decent mindset to take. You know, it, you don't want to go too far into that, but it will really help you as a DM find ways to work in the coolest parts of that character into your campaign because you're like, oh, totally. yes. I mean, I have inspiration for to use this guy's like knife throwing into this carnival scene we're going to have absolutely. upcoming. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's the DM's job to make the players feel badass. I think that yeah, one of the DM's should. jobs is to take the characters that they build and find ways to make them to feel badass. awesome. You know, and whatever that badass looks like, it might be fighting. It might be skills. It might be performance. Might I be, don't know. It might be not fighting. It might be any any of the, you know, they, they'll have it on their character. But I think that that's, that's the, exactly the thing that I look for in that is is there a clear way has the this character been built with some clear hooks that i as a dm can make this character have 
awesome moments where the player, you know, like, well, I built, I built a really fighty fighter type. Okay, cool. That's really clear. I, I know how I can give you what you want. I built a really sneaky rogue type. Got yeah. it. I know exactly the kind of things I'm going to throw to you. You know, I have a, a very scholastic researcher. Got it. So you're about knowledge and skill checks. You know, give me these clear hooks as the DM is what I'm looking for so that I can find the things that let you shine. Because if you make it easy, then we'll both be satisfied. Yeah. But if you make me go hunting for it yeah. in your character that's not, he doesn't have it's, any clear hooks, we're both going to be unsatisfied. You want to know what the main source of that motivation is. And I have, there's a great phrase that I like, it comes from Kurt Vonnegut and it's, he has a series of rules he wrote that are good rules for writers when they're writing stories. <laughs> and of course the last rule is that good writers break all the rules. Yeah. Of course. Right. In classic Vonnegut style. But my favorite one that's stuck with me ever since I've read it, it's stuck in my brain is every character should want something even if it's just a glass of water. <laughs> and I don't I totally know, agree. You, could, you could write an entire story. I thought about that when I first read it, you could write an entire story about a character just wanting a glass of water <laughs> and it could be, and you would relate to that as a human because you understand their motivation, what they want. And part of that is you, you want that character to achieve it a lot of the time, I feel right? Like this is the plot of you, the next you die You want hard the movie. hero to succeed most of the time, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that's, I think that's a big thing of it is that, like you said, what do they want? What's their main motivation? What's that driving force? What gives them that inertia? Yeah. Are they in and motion toward it? You know what? I have motion right now towards that tavern over there, actually. I'm glad you said something because I've been talking a lot. I think I'm a little parched. I would like to take some initiative over toward that tavern. Yes. Let's take a break and go get a brew. Let's do it. So welcome to Tavern Talk, where we review a brew and toast to you, and also talk about a promo that we have going on, right? Let's do it. So before we dig into the promo, this week we are enjoying this lovely Icelandic white ale called Einstuck. It's a Einstuck Urgert. It's a Viking brew. I picked it for one really sort of obscure trivia reason, which I'll come to in a moment. But one of the things I like about this is that it's a very drinkable beer. It's kind of malty. It's very easy. It's a very refreshing and crisp beer. It's it's great. What's the APV on this thing? It's uh, 5.2, so it's not going to kick you in the face, but it's also not going to leave you hanging. And, you know, it has a little coriander orange peeliness to it, but not too much. It's not like you're drinking a... Like super orange wheat beer or something. Now you can taste the coriander, and I like it. You know, it's it's a it's a it's very a nice touch. distinctly characteristic. You 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 drink this beer and you're like, oh yeah, this is easy and delightful, and also kind of unique. Yeah, it has kind of like almost, and the the maltiness is almost more of like an oats kind yeah. of maltiness yeah. to it. It's I not really like, like a it. lot of the other white ales it's, that I've had. Yeah, it's not a cheap beer because it's imported from Iceland, right? Uh, but it is definitely a, a worthy brew. So the reason I picked this one. It's just a fun trivia. So Dungeons and Dragons, one of the big sources it pulls from are in the Appendix N. More than you would think. Way more than... Way more than <laughs> Lord of the Rings in some cases. Oh, absolutely. Is Robert Howard's Conan stories. Conan of Sumeria. Conan the Barbarian. These, these classic Conan tales. Now, fun trivia. Conan, if you look at the cover of the book, he's classically wearing this horned helmet. And... 
oddly enough, in all of the Conan stories, if you read them and you go through all of them, he never once, not in any of them, wears a horned helmet. It's not a thing. It's not a thing that Conan does, which is fascinating to me because the character icon they have on this beer on Einstuck is of a Viking, a lovely Viking dude wearing a horned helmet. And, and the, the best part is Vikings didn't actually wear those. Never. They never. It's not it, even a it's thing. It's almost like Conan is mirroring that I in know. like a tongue-in-cheek kind of way. So every time I see this, I'm, I, I re, I'm reminded of that. I think about that. Yeah, I'm like, it, it just makes me giggle a little In case you're bit. wondering, the horned Viking helmets were a later edition uh, coming out of Victorian opera. traditions like opera and things like, like Wagner, that. Wagner, I think, actually. Yeah, Germanic. Yeah. I mean, and Wagner yeah. is like Germanic, so Viking heritage, but not Vikings, you know? Like, it's opera. <laughs> it's definitely opera. <laughs> yeah, and so it's one of those things. It's like, yeah, the Iron, the Iron Maiden wasn't actually used to torture people either. No. It's one of those things. So uh, I this is one of my, my standbys and go-tos. It is expensive, and uh, so I don't drink it as much as I would like to because of that. But uh, it, it's really quite excellent. Um, Quality is there. I think the, the white ale is better than their dark ale. They're both good, though. They're both good. So uh, let's talk about our promo. Yes, our promo that we're doing. It's so better than weeks, we thought right? it is. Yeah, it is. It's super good. So the promo we're doing is for the first eight episodes, eight weeks of the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, how do I qualify for the promo, Justin? Well, if you share the show, we put you in the raffle to win the prize. I now, share the show. Like, how do so I share the show? The ways you can share the show. Uh, you can just shout us out on Twitter at, at Far Realms Radio. You can hit us up on Instagram at, at Far Realms Radio. You can shoot us an email of you sharing the show, just any proof. It could be you texting your friend like, hey, check out this dope podcast. And you send them an email. You send us a screenshot of that. Uh, you can re- always reach us at farrealmsradio at gmail.com. Yep. Any proof of you sharing the show, and we'll put you in there. You can only be entered once. So if you're act- doing extra, thank you. We appreciate it, but you're only getting one entry. <laughs> what do you win if you win the raffle? So what we have are the classic three core rule books. Now, they are the limited edition. Special foil. So they have special foil covers. Plus a bonus they, DM screen. They come with a bonus DM screen. They come with this nice case that all the books slide into. It's pretty jealousy-inducing, I'll have I, to admit. I kind of want to buy this and replace my original books. One of our players has one of these books, and it looks really cool at the table, and I, it, I, I'm yeah, definitely jealous of table, that. At the table, his book definitely looks cooler than all of our books. Uh-huh. So, you know, you can either replace your books with the cooler ones, or, you know, you can give a really good gift and kind of strong arm someone into the hobby who's on the fence <laughs> i think it's like magic cards you know when you're playing magic with somebody you match the gathering well, and they bust deck. out some foil cards and you're like "Ooh, what is that yeah. you have to look at it yes yeah, this is exactly shiny. that you know so it's yeah. beautiful check it you know enter win some books if you already have them they make a great gift share the show Sh- and good luck share the game all right i think we should get back to it we have some more things to talk about for character creation right I mean, right Gotta roll some stats or some shit. All right, all right, all right. Let's take a swig and then we'll hit it. All right, back to the show. So, all right. One of the things I think it'd be foolish of us not to talk about when building a character is party balance, party cohesion. What are your thoughts on this? Like how when you when when you're a player and you're at a table and maybe you know some of the people, maybe you don't know some of the people, what what goes through your mind? How do you start building a character? What is the eye you give toward how much toward party balance, how much not? Like 
Yeah. If you already have a cleric, but you really want to play a cleric, do you play a second one? If you don't want to play a cleric and nobody wants to play a cleric, do you bite the bullet or not? You know, like, where do you fall on that? I think some of this feeds back to what we talked about in our episode on session zeros. In that, you know, just sitting there and talking with other people is going to really help give you a good idea totally, of what you totally. may need to do. Um, but party balance is something that, especially in older editions, was very important because you would die. You would get a TPK if you didn't have a good party balance uh, because that's how the game was designed. You really wanted to have a cleric. Like, clerics were good. You needed, you wanted a cleric. <laughs> you needed, the, you needed um, one. And they've designed 5th edition to try to counteract that in a way. Um, they That's why they offered more easily available healing in forms of more healing spells, that too, more edition. potions, right? Short rests and hit die yeah, and all definitely. of that, which was a really good move because the designers have explicitly stated we didn't want the cleric to feel mandatory. We didn't want people to have to feel like they have to make character choices to balance their party out. And that's true to an extent, right? If you're playing a game, however, that's very, very challenging, and it, you know that challenge can go one way or other. It may be challenging in combat. It may be challenging in espionage or whatever. You're going to benefit more from a balanced party in that regard. And by balanced party, I mean just having someone who can, you know, you can always roll well, but it's nice to have someone who can consistently deal with the pillars that you're going to run into. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 not about whether or not you can roll well, I would say. It's what happens when you roll poorly, because you will roll poorly. And you need to be able to do whatever it is you expect to do when your dice are crap anyway, you know? So, if, for instance, in this case that we're talking about, if you're a cleric, you need to be able to heal even if the dice are garbage, you know? It still has to be some sort of level of efficacy. You want to be reliable in a way, yeah. regardless yeah. of the roles. And that's why being good at a skill is helpful, because you get that plus to it right. that kind of really does that, because you have a higher average. Um, but because it was so important in past editions, a lot of players today still really care about looking at character balance when they're getting into a game. And in certain games, especially heavy combat-focused games, or maybe like an old-school dungeon crawl that has lots of traps and hazards, that there's something to that. Like, the, the, definitely you do want a balanced party to survive because the challenge of the game is high. Um, but if you're playing in a more relaxed setting or you just have a good DM who's flexible, you can really get around it because a good DM is going to know the party's shortcomings and they can counteract that by giving you maybe an NPC who fills in the gap, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you've ever ran a campaign for one other person and like mm -hmm. done like one-on-one EMD, -on -one you usually give them like a cohort you or someone that, you know, old you school style, NPC right? You used to get servants and cohorts pretty regularly yeah. in older editions and it, you know, you give them that little like dwarf cleric who's grumpy and follows them around and never outshines them or takes too much initiative and it's kind of oh i don't know i just do what you say good lordy you know like whatever this guy does right i'll do whatever you say my lord right something like that I so think that, but this is very much you know so now we've, we've kind of touched upon like all right you're building a character and you have these two sort of camps like do i build a balanced party with my other players or don't I should I bite I, the I bullet I think you don't need to worry too much about the balance you, you, party you, the players definitely don't I would actually uh, the DM in me says the players shouldn't actually worry about a balanced party and I, I have no qualm as DM if let's say a whole all the players at the table show up and they want to play bards or they want to play paladins I want to play in an all bard game wouldn't that be amazing and <laughs> you have makeup like kiss and you have band names <laughs> <laughs> and you're just trying to get to Detroit Rock City, and that's the whole campaign. And it's just like a three shot. Incredible. Uh, but I think that the point of the game, to remember, just to, it's escapist fantasy, right? You know, we're all showing up here. We're imagining together via board game, role-playing game, whatever type of game it is. And I think that 
from that perspective, the players should be able to have the escapist fantasy they want, and they should be flexible and willing to share with other players, and it's the DM's responsibility, just as a sidebar DMs out there listening, to help empower them achieve their escapist fantasy, whatever it might be. And if you happen to have a party that's all warlocks for some crazy reason, cool, run with it. Maybe run the classic standard adventure, you know, and enlist the players in helping make sense out of this, right? Why are they all warlocks? Why are they all adventuring together? Are they part of the same group? Is there competition or coopetitiveness amongst them? Yeah, you know? I, I think that's a great example of how overlap isn't always a bad thing. Right. Sometimes overlap is great because you can come up with really cool spell casting combos with your party members or, you know, you, those two characters and maybe those two players kind of feel a little camaraderie in that we're both fighters. We hold the front line while these wimpy casters sit in the back. Right. You know, and there's like that that camaraderie there. And so overlap isn't always a bad thing. Some players will kind of be like, oh, well, I want to be the blasty, shooty guy. You can't be the blasty, shooty guy. And sometimes, you know, you'll have those players where all they want to do is be the ninja. Like, that's their only goal. Yeah. And so maybe, you know, like if you have someone in your game who's really all about that, maybe don't push too hard into that because you know they're going to do it anyway. And it's just kind of... Right. Having a little courtesy for the other players, right. I think, is, if a, is a good play awareness. If you're going to play a again, don't try to make them play a barbarian. Yeah, let them kind of explore what they want and what they would like to do. Um, I think that leads to good teamwork moments. So, the, you know, in that scenario, like, all right, you're sharing roles. There's a little bit of overlap. Maybe there isn't. I think that you can't talk about party roles and dynamics and how you share these things without talking about spotlight amongst players and the DM. So... If you're running a game and you ha- let's say you have some overlap with your characters, what are some of the things that you do to make sure that each player gets the spotlight that they want, that so they need? What I do personally is before I run a game, I will write down a list of what each the name of each player and I will write down something that would really make the game enjoyable for them. Like something that I can do in this session. Like what do I need to do in this session, for example, for Skylar's character, mm. for him to have enjoyment? out of the session and feel like you got something good out of it. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's a lot easier when I've been doing a campaign with those players and those characters because I'm like, okay, this player over here really likes a good tactical combat. As long as I include one of those, they're probably going to be happy. I'm like, okay, check. I'm like, this person loves role playing with like shopkeepers and NPCs. I'll add a little, things like that. Or this person really wants a magic item. I'm going to make sure I write that in there so they have something to discover. Um, And that's how I do it personally is I will literally get a note card. I will write down the name and then next to the name i write the one thing i'm going to do to make sure that they're getting something special out of the session that i know they'll enjoy you come but, up with a plan you took but off i can only do that because i've taken time to kind of learn my players a little bit right. and that's the power of that um yeah, it doesn't work so well with like a shorter one shot exactly and that kind of and that's how i know when and where to give them spotlights because some like you can give spotlights here and there and it's good to move that spotlight around on different characters and sometimes it's cool to do it when they don't expect it like the feeble wizard like takes down the last orc with a melee attack you know and everyone's like oh man you did it wow look at you you rolled you got a crit you know and that would be like a cool moment because it's like oh this guy usually trips over his own two feet and you just beheaded that orc in one shot right so it kind of depends on the players i think and what they're looking for but that's i try to keep the spotlight moving around and some people you know Part of that is learning some players don't like too much spotlight or too much pressure and that they'll step into it when they want to. That's just part of it. Maybe they they just want to support. Yeah, I think some of the things that I do, you know, like shared spotlight is fine. It's basically in my mind spotlight. And by spotlight here, I mean like 
who has the attention, you know? And of course, this is not at all my term. It's a it's sort of how you describe the game. But from the theater perspective, it's who is the spotlight on, right? Like, who is the audience paying attention to? And in this case, the audience is all of us at the table, including the DM. And the DM is kind of like the stage manager, you know, in this scenario. The one calling, all right, next cue, who's going to... It's a big shepherd's crook. Right, exactly. How are we going to change the lighting? Does the scenery need to change to emphasize these beats in the story for these characters? So, you know, having run short games a lot, one of the things I think that works really well is... if, if we're, we've been talking so much about like characters and what the characters are looking for, but this is why I come back to what the character is, what that fantasy is for that player. I mean, yeah, it's hard. Like, really, there's not too much distinction between player and player character. They're in, they're kind of one in the same most of the time, very often, honestly. Very often. I mean, it's like I said, you, it's you escapist fantasy. Amazing, you have to be a pretty talented actor to really keep those more in separate piles. Yeah, and also, why bother? It's like you're you're playing a game. You know, exactly. it's not like you're getting paid for this. So you're gonna have as much fun with whatever blending of the two, but. The, the the DM's job here as like the stage manager is to be able to recognize different beats. You know, when does the scene change? When is the tone shifted? The encounter's done. Who And also track who has had their moments on stage, right? And that's just like logistics, you know? So, all right, the rogue has picked the lock and also opened the chest and disarmed the trap. So that person got their spotlight. And we haven't had any fights yet. So I know that the barbarian is lacking some spotlight. So I'm going to need to have some ninjas kick in the door some se- some point this session. But our wizard also hasn't gotten to exercise, so on and so forth. So I'm going to need to make sure that when the puzzle comes along, even though I know the rogue has a magical item and they could do it with skill checks, that the tone of it reads like this is more wizardy, magic-y, you can solve Some this. language only he can read, or uh, requires yeah, some spell cast that only he can cast. And just kind of paying attention to it, you know, so that as as the DM controls the flow of information for all of the players, uh, that means that the DM also controls the delivery and the tone of that information so that you deliver it in a way that, that signals very clearly, like, okay, now... This is where we're shifting some of what the skills are that are applicable here, and it's more toward these things. And then the, the players who have skills that are relevant to that pick up on those cues and can, can gain their spotlight from it, which I think is, is more satisfying than being the DM who's like, it's your turn to shine right now, right? You want to like make the encounter make it unfold. a little more subtle and a little more organic and natural lead up to it. And, you know, players are generally smart enough to kind of pick up on that. I think that, so, you know, the, the three is like, a, you want like some player's power fantasy, um, giving them some kind of mechanical thing that they can use. B, you want some kind of like role playing that they want to be able to pull off. They they convince some character. They tell some beautiful scene story about their character. And then I think the third one is when you have, let's say, two characters who have enough overlap, how do you shine the spotlight on both of them, share the spotlight with both of them so that they both feel like they had that moment and when that happens can be a very powerful moment together it oh, doesn't awesome. have to be singular it's, right? it's the anime team up attack yeah. like that, oh, yeah. everyone loves that moment so like that's it's and it's reward it builds good team cohesion when you have that side note for all the dms out there this is an excellent way to build party and, and player cohesion amongst players at the table when you find ways for them to share spotlights it's like a 
cheap psychological psychological trick. It's like, hey, you guys both succeeded at this, and they're like, yeah, we both feel oh. good that we both succeeded, and I, then they remember that. You I know? think you naturally just get that from experience so much trauma together over the course of a single <laughs> campaign. You're like, we're blood brothers we now. We survived. <laughs> yeah, or maybe we didn't. <laughs> I mean, that's true for the Underdark for right, sure. Definitely. Um, and I think that also plays over to responsibility on the DM's part in terms uh, or ex- in the player's part towards the DM in that every, you're always going to have players at your table that take more action, that take up more spotlight time or are more willing to step into it, whether they're conscious I mean, of I'm, it or not. I'm guilty of this. Absolutely. I, and, you know, I don't mind. In your games, it's great. You don't overdo it. It drives the story forward and pl- somebody needs to do it. Someone has to do yeah. it. I mean, you often have somebody at the table, and like I said, this yeah. is usually me who's like, okay, what do we do next? And then somebody takes action, which means inherently they have the spotlight, right? They start doing things. They're a catalyst. Yeah, and I tend to play very reactively since I'm so used to being a DM, and that is something I'm trying to improve in, like, taking a little bit more agency and action in the story as a PC. And the thing to remember is, as a PC, is... You shouldn't always try to break the game and ruin all the shit that the DM has set up for you. The cool part about Dungeons and Dragons is you get immersed to the point where you're like, I want to know what's over that hill. Even though you know this is clearly the quest-giving NPC in front of you that's going to lead you to the (laughs) magical tomb with all the loot and the treasure, you still want to know what's over that hill. That's that's the exploration pillar. That's the cool, yeah, that pillar is fantastic. It's one of the coolest parts of the game. It's what gets you that I could do anything. I don't have to do this obvious thing. And the problem with that is it just kind of makes the game harder for everybody else. Um, and the DMs probably put a lot of work maybe into that NPC. It's a resource they've created for you to like interact with. Well, um, I mean, isn't that sort of like... It's the DM spotlight moment is debuting that NPC to you possibly. But this is the classic thing for DMs, right? Like the players zag when you expect them to They're zag. They're always going to. You know, and, and... And you shouldn't not zag as a player, but don't do it in a way that's purposely to aggravate or just like, I'm going to mess up the DM's plans. I'm going to fuck right. with this DM. Right. Screw right. you, DM. Remember, we're all at the table. We're all friends here. We're all playing the game together by conscious and consensual choice. Yes. You and know? it always bears good remindment. We're not, we're not anybody. And if you, if you are one of those players that shows up to just like fuck with somebody else's game, then, uh, well, we've had them in games before. They just I, constantly I, want to break the rules. I will of the game. challenge you and I, you, you show up at my game and we, we're going to, we're going to teach you a few things. <laughs> <laughs> you may have to roll characters a few times. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Uh, but I think there's a, there's a point here also for spotlight on the DM while, while we're talking about yeah. this, that like, yes, the DM is the one, the DM is the narrator, the DM is the referee, the DM is the, is the game master, right? Slippery they're, slope. They're the ones who facilitate all of the players doing what they're going to do. And players, good players will absolutely riff with the DM and share spotlight and so on. DMs, however, I think should bear in mind one particular piece, which is that you are the one who runs the game. Which means that you, by default, have the most spotlight and the best spotlight for the DM. And this is true for players. So this is a lesson that players, I think, can take away. And 5e talks about this a little bit as far as, far as granting other players inspiration, which is that when you empower somebody else to have spotlight, it actually is sharing the spotlight. You've given them the spotlight and they run with it, but they remember that you gave it to them. And that's a gift. And everybody else sees it and they go, oh, wow. And the thing with humans is when they receive a gift, you feel the need to reciprocate. It's a natural thing. Everybody else respects it at the table. Modern humans. Yeah. We really do that. We're built that way. We're we're hardwired. Probably one of the reasons we don't (laughs) 
we're still here. Uh, <laughs> I, I hope so. I hope that's true. Um, I wish but, I could say that it was, it was because but, D&D that we're still around. Maybe a thousand years from now, I'll be like, because D&D exists, the human the, the race re- is still The revolution alive. is coming. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that's an important thing as a DM. It's a slippery slope. You have so much... And we've all been with that DM that has just too much exposition and they're yeah. just going on forever. It's like they're reciting poetry. And the cool thing about a DM is that can be be awesome. And there's times for it that are great. And there's also other times for it where less exposition is better. Like less is more sometimes with that. And you got to make sure that you're not getting the whole spotlight all the time. And I've heard different people explain this in different ways in terms of kind of like how it really almost in terms of the amount of spotlight time that you throw around mm-hmm. like the percentage of time as a dm is a spotlight on you like should should be limited to a certain ratio and you should try to get it off uh and get other people going i've john four from uh role playing tips has some really good material mm-hmm. on that that i've mm-hmm. read before that mm-hmm. i really enjoyed so maybe we can talk about what makes a character bought into the game and some of the ways in which players can make characters that are successfully bought in and how it can go awry. Like what, this is something that you often, I've heard you talk about quite extensively that, and then I constantly mess it up. And when I make a PC, it's the player's responsibility (laughs) to have a character who wants to adventure. You're building an adventurer. Literally you're building an adventurer. You're not building a baker. Maybe he becomes an adventurer, but then he's an adventurer. But let's say I want to play, I'm just going to play devil's advocate. Let's say I want to play a character who explores the shopkeeper mechanics out of this supplement and he has a shop. You know, I mean, like, you can do that, but it's just your character is going to be inherently limited in how they interact with the pillars of D&D because if they're not likely to be engaged in combat, go exploring or interact with other people, then you're... The game is literally dis- there's certain there is a certain boundary like you said before right within the box there is freedom mm. and there's also discipline and limitations and just like any game system there's there's a box and the game is going to be better at doing certain things than others because it is designed that way it is very good at rolling dice fighting monsters getting treasure that kind of story mm-hmm. and the more you try to break story. that mold or push play against type too hard the more trouble and more effort you're going to have to do to engage in the game and give legitimate reasons as to why your characters might do certain things. Right, right. And so I think when you're making a character, it's it's your responsibility as a player to give them a reason to be an adventurer. Don't try to break the mold too hard. I mean, I'm not playing shopkeepers and salesmen, Exactly. Now, I say this, and it's something that – it's something I've done many times myself, and that's why it's something that I'm – passionate about explaining kind of as a cautionary tale of like hey i've done this and it wasn't so fun so don't fall into this trap like i did um it you want to build a character that you know has good reason to take action be an adventurer interact with those pillars because otherwise when you get to those parts in the game where it's not what you're focusing on you're going to be really bored there's been games where i've had a character that's very very combat focused and like socially inept Mm -hmm. and the session was mostly social and i was like oh I mean, I can kind of interact and do things here in role play, but my my agency is limited a little bit by yeah. my earlier choices. I wish I had, you know, maybe made my character a little bit more well-rounded. Now, that's not always the way to go. Sometimes it's awesome to have that glass cannon character with a very apparent weakness. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with a flaw or a weakness. I mean, uh, I, I, would, I just want to add a quick side tip for the DMs out here. Like, you know, if you... If you have a player, and the players can do this too. This is, I guess, for both. If you have a character in the game that... classically your example and and I love to play smashy characters you know but they are they're garbage in social situations because they don't have any skills in social situations but some of the advice that 
the old hats have is that doesn't mean just because they don't have social skills that they're garbage in social situations. Imagine that you're a vast and powerful hunter who has roamed the plains of the wild veldt, and now you are with all of the nobles, and you're showing off the hunted beasts that blah, 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 blah. And there's like the bard over there, and he's talking to such and such, and there's the sorcerer over there, and she's talking to who's his face. Well, you still have, even though you don't have like intimidate skill maybe, or definitely not persuade, probably not deceit or any of those kind of skills, you have a pretty potent strength, constitution, and these are evident about your character. There's no reason that you couldn't use your attack bonus, your two hit bonus, for a display of martial prowess as a means by which to interact with people as well. Oh, yeah, you can smash right? a table or something. Or even or... just a display of weaponry, and, and, you know, prowess yeah. and skill... These I think that really speaks to how you play your character versus how you've built your character on paper. Because you're a lot of the time, for example, the skill list is a good example. Instead of thinking about what they're going to do and have the DM tell them what skills are relevant, they start with the skill list first. Mm-hmm. And that's where you're thinking. You're thinking the mechanics rather than thinking in terms of interacting and acting within the world that's mm-hmm. in front of you. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of that that danger there. And I think... A lot of us limit ourselves. We go, well, I have no persuasion. Why? How could I persuade this person? And it's like, well, you don't have a ton of minuses. Maybe like that's where the player with a good, clever argument, the DM may be like, well, this guy is going to buy that argument. It's a great argument. Right. I don't. You don't right. need to roll. That's. I think that's the problem. Is it comes right. back to everyone thinking they need to roll for everything, and they're like, oh, I'm not good at this skill, and I'm going to roll bad, and I'm going to have a minus to it, and it's like. You may not need to roll at all. Right, Maybe right. you have such a great suggestion and it's so reasonable and likely the DM's like, yes, they agree with you. D- deal. I mean, this is, I think, a corollary in modern RPGs that you see like video games. It, it's, I think is that's that part if there's of like it. dialogue choices and then you have some special power or like you have, you know, you have like three dialogue choices and one of them is like wisdom related. But, and if you're high wisdom, you choose yeah, that one because you have it, you know, but you can't if you don't. D&D lets you fail forward. Video games don't always work that way. That's true. In D&D, you can fail, and you usually fail forward, and things keep going on. We know that 99% of the time, the party's going to not die, Yeah. right? You don't get that many TPKs, and if you do, your DM probably sucks. So <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> hopefully find a new game. But in video games, you got to do it over and over and over a lot of the time until you can get through that part. Mm-hmm. And so failure is a lot, you know, it's, it's not scary because we play games and you die all the time. But in terms of how we view failure and progress, it's in D&D, it's a little bit more like real life and you can fail forward. Yeah. Where in a video game, it's like, well, you got to do that level it's over again. It's not so binary. It's like yeah, you it's, failed. It's much you know. less binary. So I think that's that's a big part of it as well. Um, you know, don't limit yourself to how you play your character just based on the stats that you wrote down. One of the things I've seen characters often fail for, and this, I always, I'm a little sad when I see this, and I haven't found a good way to antidote it yet, but it does happen. And I think we'll just talk about it. Is players build really interesting characters, and they work together for a while, and you know the story goes on, the game goes on, and then at some point, one of the characters decides the player is like, my character is going to go over here and do this thing, and the rest of the party's like, we're not interested in that. We're going to go over here and do this and they're other thing. Adamant about doing that thing, and they're like, well, my character would do this, you know, and I'm going to go do this. This is thing. his life's goal. He's going right, to do it, right? And they lose the reason to stick with the party, you know, and they don't have 
any kind of cohesiveness to do that anymore, you know? And that, that can be a really traumatic experience because not, not from like, oh no, so-and-so is leaving the party, but more from the, the it's like cognitive dissonance, you know? Yeah. The players at the table are like, oh. They feel a little betrayed. Oh no, like this, yeah. Like, like we've, we've survived so much together and now you're leaving us for well, this. Also, you built a character that doesn't want to- Hang out with us? Like play with us anymore. Is this like you trying to get out of the game? Is it that you're not satisfied? These, these are questions that go through players' minds, you know? Is this, is this like, did you just like fuck up? You know, like why, why, yeah, why I mean, don't, cause you, cause we, you can change it. it. Maybe right? it's more your feelings character. and emotions and not really those questions verbally, right? but they'll have right? the kind of like, why is this happening? Kind of confusion. Especially the players who play for that feeling of camaraderie, yes. you know, and they're like, no, yes. but we're a team, like, and we're friends and we save the day. Well, and also don't split the party. Like yeah, classic I mean, there's, there's a reason, don't split the party. There's a reason we say that. But I think that, you know, remember I mean, it's. You can split the party sometimes. It's okay. I, I don't. I don't hold that splitting the party is always a bad thing. I think that you yeah. know it's always case by case. But only Sith stealing absolutes. <laughs> I mean, clearly. Uh, when does your DM run away? So you know, but it, it's useful to remember that it's an escapist fantasy, and I think that in those moments, you know, it's it's up to the player. And this is like the DM has a lot of responsibility in the game, but so do the players. And the and the players, this is one of them, which is know your character and know. All right, you know what? Fine, know yourself. If I'm if my character is going to go off and do this thing that's not with the rest of the party, it's what my character would do, then it's up to the player to figure out, A, how do they exit, work with your DM, but you're going to drive that player. And then B, what am I what, what am I going to play next? You know, like what else is going to come along? How, how does this, you know, what does this look like? Because it, it's basically like, all right, imagine you're playing Pandemic. And uh, Pandemic is a great board game. It's a very simple board game. It's a collaborative board game. I like it a lot. It has roles, right? You pick a role. Your role has special powers. You have a common goal. D&D has all of that. Same thing. Now, imagine if you're playing Pandemic where you need to cooperate to, to win this game. Or everybody loses. Or we all lose. The board game beats you, TPKs right? TPKs are a lot more common. It's a very collaborative game. You don't win if you don't work together. And then in the middle of the game, at a critical moment, when you're like, I don't know if we're going to win this game or not, one of the players says, I think I'm done playing this crucial role. My character just wouldn't do this thing. I'm not interested in it. You know, and like it totally throws the whole thing into the, um, it throws a monkey wrench in it. It's just Scale like, spin. yeah, it's, it's bad news. So, you know, what to do with that? And speaking from the DM's perspective, you know, that's always like, okay, how much effort do we need to spend on this? You know, do, how much do they have ready? How much are we going to need to like, do we need to do one or two sessions to do, you know, like, is like, do I have to rework the plot or how much did I invest in that? So from the player's perspective, like you have to have something if you're going to do that. If you're going to go down that kind of hard line road of my, but my character would do this, mm -hmm. then you're also, I think it's fair to say, responsible to come up with what the next character you're going to play is going to be. And I would say too that maybe make one that's not as hard line. Right? I agree. And I, we just did this in one of the campaigns that we run in the, the Out of Abyss campaign that you're running. I literally was playing this Alchemist Goblin yeah, and it got to the point, early. right? We mentioned him earlier. And I decided maybe I wanted to try a different character. And so the way I did that, it was I talked to the DM, Skylar, and I was you like... You handled this very well. You already had one And I was up. like, I kind of want to take my goblin and in the direction of Gollum in Lord of the Rings right. and have him become, you know, really corrupted by this cursed item that he had. And so that's kind of the angle that we played it. And it kind of fed into the murders and things that were going on with the party. And 
before I came to him with that, though, I had at least one to three. You should always come up with more than one character concept. Yes. Um, character concepts that I would prefer to play instead. And the most important thing is, was why do I want to play this character instead of the character that I was playing? And I realized it was because I needed a little bit more buy-in. Because it makes it so much more rewarding for me when I play a character to play a character that, like, is involved in the main plot and the storyline is invested and maybe even feels a little bit more heroic because that's kind of how the game puts you on rails for that. It does. And, and one thing I really kind of realized when I was looking at that is a lot of the time you don't necessarily need to tie the character in with the overarching story of the campaign or the world. You just need to tie them in with the party, with the group. Oh, totally. Because if you can do that, you know there's going to be some fucking paladin who's like, we're doing this, everyone, and no one's arguing, and everyone's like, okay, we got to do this. The paladin really wants to go save this person. <laughs> Paladins, right? Or, you know, if you're connected to enough members in the group and you're like, well, I, I'm sticking with this group for whatever reason – there's going to be someone in the group that's like, hey, we need to go do, you know, and you're going to totally. you're going to get along totally. for the ride. I think it's a and totally great point. I think it's really boring when you've played this game many times doing the, OK, we all all our characters meet in a tavern. Let's all meet each other. I think there's a, a really good strategy is to why not have your characters know each other already? Why not have them be on a team together or serve together in a military aspect? Or one that I like is like, oh, our characters are brothers or, you know, some people Absolutely. will play characters as couples, and I think that's kudos to couples that can do that. You can pull it off, sure. Especially I, if they're not actual couples in real life. That's a little more like, ooh, it's a little awkward, but it's like, hey, respect if you can do that. Hey, bro, do you want to be my if, romance, bro? If, if, you, if you can do it in a respectful, <laughs> cool way that doesn't make people uncomfortable, totally. awesome. It adds to the game. That's great. But I think that this is an, a great, really excellent area where D&D provides some tools and they're a little sparse, but the scaffolding is there enough to, to really lean into this. Pathfinder does it really well. They do. Uh, it, there's some other baggage that comes with Pathfinder because it's crunchy, of course, but D&D has this too, which is, and, and I think that you touched exactly on it, which is the best way to keep this from happening where players zag and one in particular, my character would do this is to have the characters have shared history. I mean, we don't have this in, I think, most of the games that we have today. It's, it's something that, is surprisingly, people don't do quite as they much. They don't. They don't. And I think part of that is, like, a session, session zero really helps with that, and talking with other people in the creation process. Right. Because it has to be a little more collaborative if you're going to have a shared background or a shared history, because sometimes people are like, oh, that's not the idea I had for my character. Yeah. Which comes back to my, my tip of always having at least three character concepts so you don't get too attached Absolutely. to one. You can always put it on the back burner and come back to it later. Yeah. I have a sumo wrestler character concept that I will play at some point. It <laughs> will happen. It will happen. Uh, all right. <laughs> so, but I think that that's, that's really crucial, right? Like how do we make characters that have ties to other characters in the party? And that's the, that's the key part. You want to keep your character having longevity in the party, give them ties to everybody else in the party or as many as you can. Or at least one strong bond to someone else in the group. Definitely. I've played yeah. with DMs who that was their, uh, they made a ruler in character creation. I think I played this in a game with you when we played mm -hmm. Cthulhu. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a mechanic there where each character has to know one of the other characters in some way from the past. That was a fate and game. And fate has that as fate. part of its mechanics. And, that, and I really I like it. I think is a very brilliant character creation mechanic yeah. Yeah. because it, it really does this for you. Yeah. I think I thought that was a very smart way to do it. Like you have to know at least one of these, uh, one of these people for some reason, it can be whatever you want, 
but you have to know them in some way, even if it was just a brief crossing of paths. Right. I mean, and you can't blame a, a player who's like, oh, my, my character would do this and, you know, maybe it would be a suicide mission or they're going to exit the story for whatever, one reason or another. But if they have a tie to another character in the story, that's an automatic way for them to back off from that ledge, for the player to back down a little bit and make maybe a more, I'm going to call it even cinematic emotional choice, which is a player-focused choice, you know, I'm not going to go down that extreme route. I'm going to flirt with it. But actually, one of the players goes, dude, if you do that, your character's probably going to die and you got to roll well, a new one. And they go, you know what? You're right. Somebody's got to stop the Balrog. <laughs> yes. Although Gandalf comes back. So. I mean, Gandalf the White comes back. Is Gandalf the White the same as Gandalf the Grey? Is it the same person? He's a different color. Does that mean he's a different person? I don't know. There's there's debate about this. If you look on the internet, <laughs> know, you will see like is Gandalf the Grey the same as Gandalf we could the White? Go on to Reddit and My opinion is that they are the same, but I, sure I have been proven wrong by an this entire dissertation on this topic at this point. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's that's a you know an interesting thing to look at is that shared history and that shared backstory because it it does so much work for you. That yeah. single decision yeah. has so much payoff. Yeah, because you're like, oh, I would never betray him. He's my brother. Like, and that's, right. you, you know what your character would do because you know that belief, that value that they hold. Um, so the other part of that, that really thing that really helps with group cohesion is when you look at your character, something to consider is even when you're not playing a cleric, what benefits can my character provide to others in the group? Like, what can I do to make myself valuable to other players or even other characters within the game? Like, what value do I add? You know, that's a good thing to think about when you're designing a character, if you're really building them meant to be in a party. I mean, I don't mean, I mean to be little, too dystopian yeah. here, but that's a question that I think that we should ask in the workplace all day, every day. <laughs> like, what, what, what value do I add to society? That's kind of dark. Yeah, I, no, I don't want to go down that road. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. <laughs> and then you start doing math and you're like, oh, oh, mm. oh, no. No, I think it's, it's totally valuable, you know, like to think about, all right, if I'm in the party... You know, I don't want to display a character whose stats are all like 10s, 11s, and 12s, right? What where, what value? That's true. We're here to play the game. So let's play the game, you know? And, and that means that you have to find something that you find interesting that nobody else hates in the game, at least. Hopefully. And, and, and may, hopefully even that they, they're like, yeah, that's a good value add. Please bring that. But I think that, you know, we're talking about like shared background, and that makes, it solves a lot of this, but it's easy to go the other way too, which is too much background. And I think that this is a really good way to lose interest in your character also is if you have given so much <laughs> effort and thought and, you know, it's just not getting exposed. Maybe, you know, it's not that kind of game where we're all going to read your 10 page backstory. It's like not that. You I'm know? really good. At, I, I'm really good at doing that. And you will lose. You will lose. <laughs> you will lose interest in your own character because, like, you know all this the stuff. St the story's told. Nobody else gives a shit. And it's it's really no, the yeah exactly. The other players aren't going to read your ten page backstory. To the other players at the table, your character is what they've seen and experienced of that character. The right. interactions they've had with that right. character. And that's why you'll see characters you play with will become iconic for something that they do that's silly or ridiculous, not something that's written in their backstory most of the time. It's it's the same way, you know, when you meet somebody, it's their mannerisms and things like that. You don't know their backstory right away. Like, you can know somebody in real life without knowing their history, without knowing that backstory, because you've interacted and spent time mm -hmm. with them, and you know who they are as a person mm -hmm. and how they act. So it's the same thing in D&D &D in that regard, in that... Too much backstory, too much agenda, which is a trap I fall into a lot, is you get in there and you're like, well, no one's like, I feel like that was kind of pointless or 
I have no more story to tell because I kind of know who this character is and where they're going. Yeah, I mean, it's also sort of like if you have focused too much on backstory and written too much, you know, it, it feels sometimes like whose story are we telling here? You know, is it like, oh, I want to tell this specific story and you are all witnesses to my yeah, story? Yeah, is it your hero journey all of a sudden instead of the campaign the DM set up? Or is it up? that we're in a collaborative game, we're going to play together and we can share it together and we're going to evolve the story with each other, you know, which which I think is the where the game really shines. I think it's its strength mm-hmm. more than exploring some deep backstory. I agree. I, I think there's better mediums for that. And I find like something like form, written form RP is much, much better for that. Uh, I would point you at White Wolf Games. Go play yeah, those. Yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a lot of good mediums where if you really want to get into the backstory of your character and the thoughts in your character's head and more exposition, yeah. more writing or play-by-post. Like, play-by-post D&D is fantastic for that. And I've played variations of that, and it really gears so well to that, especially if you're with other writers or players who want to do that as well because you can really work off of each other. I want to I want to make a caveat here, however, because I, I don't want it to sound like don't have rich backstory. Correct. I think that having a rich backstory is good, but there are some guidelines that I want to just sh- sort of usher players toward, specifically around if you're going to have a rich backstory, the key to making it successful is that you, A, have to work with the DM to B, have the backstory enrich the main story, right? So have your character's secret quest that they've been questing for be something that's thematically appropriate for the story, that fits with some stuff that the other players might want, that that jives with the game, right? You have to tie it back in. It has to tie somewhere. And and your DM is your is your compass for this. They're the one who knows where this is going. So they're the one who can help you figure out how to make it fit, right? You know, not that you need 10 pages, but if you're going to write some pages of backstory, make sure that you tie it in, like introduce stuff. For instance, uh, maybe if you're going to play a pirate character, some of your character's backstory has to do with a famous golden parrot legend. And the DM didn't come up with this, you did. And you toss that toward the DM and the DM is like, all right, I can run with that or not and decide if that's just like a fantasy that your character heard and that's part of your story or if it's real and your character chases it down or whatever. But you can think of it kind of like a reverse plot hook for the DM. You know, the player goes, here's a plot hook. Do you take it or what does it look like? And honestly, as a DM, I find it easier when that backstory is a little briefer because it gives me more room to play with things and be like, okay, cool. I can do this or I can do that. The longer and more detail it is, the more constraints I have and that I have to keep it accurate to those constraints that contain a good verisimilitude for that player. Also, how are you going to do any kind of exposition if it's like two, three pages or more? That's the thing. None of the other players are going to learn that. They're they're not going to know your backstory. They're, They're... you're lucky if the DM knows your whole backstory sometimes, <laughs> right? Right. And here's the thing, though. you're like Most DMs, if you tell them, like, hey, how can I tie this in a little bit to what's going on? They'll just be stoked to give a shit enough to try to tie it into what they've spent time <laughs> working on. They'll be like, oh, my gosh, yes. You mean you don't want to fuck it up? You want to, like, work cohesively within this world I've created? Oh, yes, please. Send me your stuff. Well, Let's take a look. We've catered a lot toward, like, DMs in this podcast so far and uh, players who maybe have some sense of the game but and – Maybe we can talk a little bit about what makes sense for new players approaching the game who totally. don't have years of experience. And I want to start with one particular anecdote, which is like, you know, you look, if you say you're a new player to the game, I wish I could understand why this is. You look at a new player to the game, you open the player's handbook, you start looking through all of the classes, and maybe eight or nine times out of ten, you land on 
half elf druid. It's always a half elf, and I'm like, why? They're, they're good at everything, and everyone likes them. Why? Why half elf druid? It's druid like, is always the hardest class. It's, it's like the it's, most complicated. It's very class. complicated for a new player, but it's, it's complicated for every player. It's just it's, it's like when you go to play a druid, that's yeah, what you expect. Make sure you have your extra stat box ready for wild shape. All of your all of the animal summons that I mean, you summon too. You know, you know, I found druid is not too bad to play. The problem I find comes when you're pulling source uh, abilities and spells from multiple resources. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And so I'll just end up I'll just end up praying them all or out. Or even just like managing. Okay, I, I, I summon animal three, and oh, I yeah, have a that's... whole bunch of summons on the field, and now yeah. I have to control six characters. Yep. You know, like oh my god. Or the DM has to because I'm a new so, player, yeah. and the DM is like, "Fuck you." I mean, and, maybe, and for some players, you know, you're especially with like nerdier folk like ourselves. You know, you go, well, this is kind of an advanced and difficult thing. And they're going to be like, well, then I have to do it. How dare you question my inability or my intelligence, right? You're always going to have that player that's like, you know, they said I shouldn't play a wizard for my first character. So I'm doing it. I warned you. Like, like mainly you told them not to do it. So, of course, they're going to fucking do right, it. Right, right. I mean, yeah. And that's fine. You're always going to have people like, you know, in the realm of the Indian nerdy folk, you're always going to have that person who goes, oh, well, we'll see about that. I'm pretty intelligent. And they probably are. So you'll see that. So I actually think that... But I think a new player should just simplify. You know, like don't multi-class. Play within the bounds of the game. Don't play yeah, against I type agree. too hard. I agree. And I know? actually think that, you know, if you if the goal is simplicity, it's like I should play a human. And I don't actually don't think that's true. Humans are very good still in all the editions. In this one too, they're very general. I'm surprised by how many humans that I do make. Because but, as a kid, I was like, how oh, boring. I could be an Arakakra and fly around. Why would I want to be a human? I think I think it's a far better choice if you're looking for an interesting character to make to lean into a race that you don't like. You know, that doesn't call to you right away. You know, so I'll give you an example. I, I never liked Dragonborn in 4E and in 5E for a long time I was like I don't know you know like we added an obligatory dragon person like who cares like weren't weren't we good enough with what we had before did we have to add them to the player's handbook and and I will say get off my lawn all you youngsters I said the same thing about the tiefling when it came around you know like do we really need to add we, this to core races I think we all said that and the answer is <laughs> yes we absolutely did need to add it to core races I'm glad that it's there I think it's a good addition to it people love same it same with dragonborn and but I think that 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 I had that resistance to those races tells me something about that race that later I went and was like, you know what, I am going to make a character like that because because I had that resistance and I want to make a character that I enjoy. So what is it going to take for me to, with that race and maybe a class that I like, do that, make it something that I can sink my teeth into for a while, you know? So I don't know. I, I think that there are definitely classes that I would shy players away from if they're the more, new to the game. You know, if you're new and it's a very complicated class, like a wizard or a druid, you know, there's a lot of spell prep mm -hmm, and you're going, mm -hmm. you have to learn all these different spells. New players always struggle with spells because they're very specific unto themselves. But I, I think that if I was going to like, the, 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 the race that I would shoo players away from if they're making new ones for the game, if they're new to the game, is actually human. I would I would push them toward the exotic races, toward the interesting races, because I, mean, yeah. I think it's a very easy hook for the game to be like, hey, I want to be something that's escapist fantasy. I want to jump into something that I don't understand. I think or it's there's new. Also, the danger of going too exotic down, you know, in that direction as well. well that's the, for the DM yeah. to like set the bounds. You know, are, are, generally are, though, are, what are they? Gripply? Are gripply allowed? Especially for a new player, if you're truly your first time playing, I hope you're using a pre-gen because that's just the easiest way yes, to kind of see totally. how things work. Totally. Um, and when you make that first character, character creation can get very complicated very quickly. 
And so I think sticking with like pick a class, pick a race, and just go with it for a little bit. Because here's the thing: if you haven't played, you don't know the classic D and D stuff. It's still new to you. Yeah, the you don't, are new. You don't need to go breaking type, breaking molds. You're like play that half elf wizard and play the shit out of it. Play that dwarf fighter. Like you haven't gotten to experience these like parts that are D and D culture. The elf wizard, the dwarf fighter. Like these are things that. You know, like we have jokes and things about them because it's how, you know, it's history of the game. And I think you're really missing out if you jump to go too exotic too quickly. And it's something I'm guilty of even as a DM in that I realize like, wow, like I could just focus on doing the basics, on doing the classics better than I've been doing them mm-hmm. instead of compensating by reaching for exotic options. And that would be amazing. That being said, as a new player, like, of course you want to be a fantasy race. You don't want to be a stinking human. Right, I mean that's that's sort my of like my favorite race as a kid was the Aracocra because gra- I was like, grab how on, dope you can fly yeah, a bird person, of course. Dope. They're like Kenku but with wings. Yeah, uh, I think so. One of the other things that's interesting when considering characters, and this is uh, this is always a controversial topic at every table I've been at, and it's always interesting topic to me, which is alignment. Oh God, you no! Know, so you, I don't know why people act like this is so controversial. Well, I mean, he, the the reason is because I, I mean, think he, it's a it's a very intentional abstraction. Of yes. ethics and morals, and ethics and morals are inflammatory in every scenario. Period. This is also, true. see politics. Right. That's just how <laughs> that is. You know. But D and D has this, and Five E de-emphasizes alignment far more than any other it's edition. Mechanically tied to very few things. Very at, few at all. I mean, uh, there. When you get into the planes, I think that's you know, the there's, there's some of it there. It's but, less of a hot topic now. Yeah. Because it's not as limiting. You know, it used to be frustrating if you wanted to play a paladin because there was these limitations. Right. And it was unique to the paladin a lot of the time, right. which was a little strange. Bard had it too. Barbarian you know, had a little bit. Yeah, monk a little bit. Monk a little bit too. But it was something that it almost felt like you had less agency or there was more rules. I don't know what it was. But that part of alignment being gone is actually kind of nice because now the way at least I look at alignment, and this is something that I first heard Matt Colville say. Uh, so credits to him. He's fantastic. Go check his stuff out if you've never seen it. Uh, but he says – Characters don't have alignments. Characters have beliefs. Those beliefs inform their actions. And we classify those actions in the alignment based on... Because the alignment chart is law and chaos, right? And it's... Which is law and order. Mm-hmm. And then you have selfishness and altruism, which is usually the other side, right? Good and evil. That's mm-hmm. usually how mm-hmm. we do it. You can argue other things. But those actions are going to be categorized by those labels. And so that's, you know... Belief informs the action, and the action is kind of what we categorize. Like, yeah, the character doesn't yeah. have an alignment. They have a belief. Yeah. And I think that's a really, really good way of looking at it because a lot of the time we look at a character, it's like, what does your character believe? Do they believe the innocent should be protected? Then they're probably going to act in accordance to that. And I think that's a, such a good place to start with your alignment for your characters. Don't even look at the alignment chart. Write down three things that your character believes, strongly believes is true to the – like. Or three things they value. Yeah. Oh, and then totally. write those down and then look at the alignment chart have a t- and kind have of a see, conversation with you know, DM, where you does know. this fit in? Uh, so you, you, I think you you hit the nail on the head. And D20 Modern did this very succinctly back in the day. You know, it it, dis- it disregarded the alignment system. I like I, alignments. Alignments are abstract. A and, lot of 5e DMs don't even play with alignment. And, and a lot of alignments usually lend players historically to be locked into a certain belief structure or, or pattern of behavior. And in my view, alignments are a, a, an easy and quick paraphrasing of your character's beliefs. It's a quick, you know, exchange of 
I feel this and my character would value this and we can talk about it like this, and, which is only really useful. It gives us the language to talk about it. As they change, as time goes by, your alignment changes and your character's beliefs change and the, and the alignment reflects that. But the other part of that is when you're making a character, the three things like you talked about in D20 Modern were called allegiances and they made it more abstract. They said, all right, pick three things. They can be a corporation. They can be altruism, the idea thereof. They can be a person like your mom. It can be a belief like fairness. Three things. Pick three things. And those are your character's allegiances. And remember, this is old school D20, right? So there were mechanics that were tied to alignments. So back in that version yeah. of D&D, you had protection against evil, protection against good, magic circle against evil, magic circle against good. Protection and from law or chaos. That translated that. into D20 Modern with you could do protection against Coca-Cola Corporation, for instance. Magic <laughs> circle against Enron. Right. You know, yeah, like, yeah. you could do that kind of thing, which was really cool. It felt so empowering because it, it reflected the complicated ethics and morals we have in today's society. So it worked really well with D20 Modern. But I think it was a really great thought exercise to think yeah. about what is your character value? Well, I think that's why in 5e we have these, you know, the ideals, beliefs, personality, yeah, flaws, definitely. bonds, all of that. And it's not a system that I'm totally happy with, but I'm cool. I'm happy to see that kind of that step forward. I kind of wish it was like more tied to the alignment yeah, system. I wish there was some more tie-ins there because it kind of feels like you write those down when you make the character. Yeah. And then you never look at them again because you're like, I know who my character is. It's helpful having them around the sheet. Sometimes it's a good reminder, especially for players who don't like to play into their character's flaw or they try to avoid it. When right. Sometimes that's like the most valuable part of your character right. and you should really go for it. Right. Um, like with my goblin, I'd love to love to play into how like kind of socially inept he was. And he was just continually trying to convince people that they should hire him for his services so he could give them <laughs> tentacle arms because they're better than regular arms. Obviously, <laughs> And I mean, I felt pretty vindicated when our party ran into Demon Gorgon at some point and my character was like, see tentacle arms, I fucking told you. Didn't I tell you so? Look what you could be doing. You could be, <laughs> you you could be, be a demon prince. You could be Demon Gorgon. You too could you be too. a demon lord. <laughs> Call now. <laughs> so, uh, one of the things that I think 5e doesn't support very well, other editions have, but I still think about a lot and I think is a worthwhile way of approaching a character is through the things that your character knows how to do. And that's best reflected usually through skill proficiencies, alignments, what weapon proficiencies, what you know, right? Yeah. I'm skilled with thieves tools. I'm skilled with it's, a gambling, a gaming like, set. What can you do? Yeah. You know, and this very, very clearly ties to oftentimes skill-based characters, rogues, bards, scholars, wizards, etc. Yeah, classically you know? the skill-based ones. What do I know? You know, that's really what it boils down to. And then that informs how you approach the world, right? Totally. So this character knows about arcane things. They know also how to gamble. They maybe also know how to charm you. Well, that probably sounds like an illusionist. And you'll get a mix of that from your different parts of your archetype, right? Like if you're a dwarf, you get the, you get a, feature that makes you better at recognizing stonework for example right um so you'll get little bits of this from both you know from each parts of that archetype which is kind of a cool way to do it in terms of you know you feel like your character has a little history already you know they've spent time doing things do you ever find that you approach a character when you're building a character for the long haul oh about like from the from ability scores do you ever like i want to i'm gonna only only when I'm playing 3.5 and I need that prestige class. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, fair. <laughs> so from video games and from playing older editions where you had to plan ahead really carefully, like to get that specific prestige class, you mm -hmm. had to plan like, okay, I need to know what levels I'm taking what class so that by the time I get to that, 
I meet the requirements. The prerequisites yeah. are pretty tight. I mean, that still exists in and this it, edition. It still some. exists to a degree when you're doing multi-classing in, in fifth edition. And I think it's a good feature to have. I think it's a little unfair. Certain hybrid classes have two requirements. I agree. Like my poor monk. He's just like, why? I mean, you can't well, catch a break. There's there's some trade-off here too. Like in your game, I my ranger, I built very intentionally knowing that at fourth level, I was going to get an ability bump. And I built him with two stats at 17 so that I could take a, yeah. a, a bump on both of those and bump them up to 18, you know, and, and, and planning ahead for that, knowing, all right, I'm going to be suboptimal for three levels until I get to there bump and, one up and boom, I can get yeah. there. The trade-off being, of course, that I can't multi-class as soon as I want. Like, cause if you're going to multi-class ideally, let's say abilities aren't part of it, then you do three levels in one class, you get the archetype. And then you do three levels in another class, you get the archetype. And then however many times you want out of that, you know, because level three in any given class is like the magic number. Sometimes, sometimes you get it at one or two if you're lucky. Yeah, maybe if there's a balance issue. You know, but Some of them are a little more front-loaded. But that also means that you're not going to get the fourth-level ability boost, and you're not going to get, like, in any of the fighty classes, the fifth-level multi-attack, right? This is true. So and it requires some careful there's planning. There's some sacrifice for right. multi-classing. Right. And I think, yeah, this is one of those times when you do want to plan ahead a little bit more. And now, if you've never, multi-classing can get very complicated very quickly, especially if you're doing different uh, casting classes. Some work together really well. I think it's easier in this edition than it has maybe it, in most other some editions. Some of them. Some of them work together better. Like the Sorcerer and the Warlock multiclass is very easy because their spell slots are essentially interchangeable. I just but- want to harken back to second edition where <laughs> if you were an elf, you weren't allowed to multiclass into like cleric. Like you just, it wasn't a thing, you know, it's like not in the rules, you know. Yeah, just, you couldn't do it. You can't be a paladin. If you're so, an elf, you can't be a paladin. Yeah. It's not a thing. You have so much more freedom than you used to, but it's a double-edged sword because it can get complicated very quickly and like yeah. Skyler is saying you know when you multi-class you tend to make sacrifices in some areas so you, you tend to become more jack of all trades or you always have something you can do but it's probably less powerful and affecting than if you were just right. just taking that single class because right. you're getting the spells later you're getting the features later so sometimes it can feel like you're a little bit behind if you have to know what you're getting into yeah you know? yeah you need to know and that's why planning ahead is important because you can prevent yourself from feeling weak or behind or ineffective because you're like okay i can kind of plan what i'm going to take at each level so right at least it's an effective order of building it up and the nice thing is if you're playing in a campaign where you're starting off beyond level one you can kind of skip the hassle of having to multi-class oh, totally. because you're like cool i don't have to play that level where i only have elders blast or this level where i only have that or i don't have this yet because i'm starting at level four right and so that changes it too and so multi-classing is one of those times where you do want to plan ahead a little bit more. i always go back and forth on this with every group new and if it's totally all new players it's always level one but if i have like some experienced players in the group i'm always like oh do we start at level one and work our way up because you've earned it by the time you hit level three? Or do we just start at level three because that's where the game really starts? Sometimes you know? it, I love starting at level three. I have to admit that historically playing, I would always be the player like, hey, DM, we're starting at level three, right? Because right. I just playing level one and two a lot of the time. Just you get hit from a stereo, from a goblin, you go down and you're just like, cool, I feel really heroic right, right now. I'm such a hero. I just got spanked uh, by... And like, that's fine. It's it's big. one of the joys of the game, honestly, when you're <laughs> that level one wizard. Like, we've... I don't know about you, but I've had that character that dies in the very first round of the combat of the camp. It's only satisfying it if you're able to make it to level three yeah. later, because then you look back and you're like, I remember when. Right, exactly. And so there's something to be said for what level you're starting at as well uh, when you look at characters. Um, because that definitely changes things. But, you know, usually you're a more experienced player if you're starting a later level. Yeah. Or it's a shorter campaign or a one-shot or something. So there's less worry about what you're committing to. 
Well, so how do you bring a character to life? You ha- let's say you have your character, oh, you've made all the stats, you've built him, you so, know, like what are the things that you do? This is an area where I was hoping you would give the expertise because you sh- you've practiced this before a lot more. But for me, there's one trick that I like to use. And that thing is I try to give the character one quirk. And it could be anything. It could be a funny accent. They could talk with their mouth really wide the whole time. So they sound like this. And that's and I'll just hold my mouth like this when I talk as the character. That's amazing. And it's more of a physical thing than me making a voice, you know, or something like that. Or maybe they're a character that has like a nervous twitch or they're constantly stroking their beard mm-hmm, or they, they mm-hmm. blink a lot. Or mm-hmm. I try to pick one little mannerism, one quirk of speech and accent, some kind of peculiarity. Mm-hmm. And I kind of let the character grow from that. Um, other times what I find really works is writing down like a real life analog. Uh. So I'll write down like Professor Farnsworth from you know, Futurama. Yeah. And that'll be like kind of my cue of like, okay, this guy's like Professor Farnsworth. So kind of channel him when you yeah. do this. Yeah. And that's kind of nice because you have one piece of information that signifies a lot of information. Yeah. It's kind of like a quick reference. Yeah. And with the way that humans think, it's a really good way to do it. You know, like if you're playing someone that's like a ridiculous character and you can find an analog to it, like just reading that can help remind you like, oh yeah, okay, get there. Because especially as a DM, you're you're changing that accent, voice hat out a lot, possibly. I mean, Mozart was the one who said, ma- good composers write everything themselves. Masters steal everything, right? So I think for me, when I was in college, one of my TAs had a theory he, he made up about the different kinds of actors. And he did it within the context of approaching a role. So I still use this. I think it, he stumbled on something that was really useful and, and interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he broke it down. Basically, there, there are three types of, of actors. And I think this applies directly to how I approach a character and bring it to life. The three types he said, there were body actors, there were head actors, and then there were passion actors. And the body actors got into a role and brought a character to life if they could move like the character. They would figure out the character's tics, the mannerisms, the body language, the posture. Like Andy Serkis is a great example. Yeah, Andy Serkis is the He's canonical like the example, example of that. Gary Oldman's also very yes. good at that sometimes, but Andy Serkis is maybe Keanu better. Reeves is a great physical yeah, exactly. actor. Physical actors tend to be very good at action movies, Vin Diesel, you know, like they're, they're good at that sort of stuff. They, they embody the characters, how they move, and that's how they approach getting into that character's life. A head actor gets into the thought processes, the routines, the thinking habits, the arrangements in the head. This is more your method actor kind of? It's all method acting, right? Like, and there's all different kinds of methods, you know, but, but this is the kind of one, this is more like, Gary Oldman does this too. Heath Ledger did this with the Joker. They, they, They get into the mindset of the character. They think about how this character thinks about the world, what the thought patterns are of that character, uh, and they try to get into the headspace as much as they can. If they can think like the character thinks and they can get access to that role, and then passion actors are the ones who bring their heart, their fullest selves to the character. And there's not a lot of variation between one role to the next that they play. But we don't really care because they do such of an interesting job. And this is like Harrison Ford. Yes, you know? that's like, a great Harrison point. Ford is Harrison Ford is in any role you but see it's him. fine. But we love him anyway. He does him and it's great. And we want him. And he's like Han Solo slash Jack Ryan slash Indy. It's and fine. It's the same and we don't same, care. Same with Tom Hanks. 
Yeah, Tom Hanks. You're just like Tom oh, Hanks is Tom great. Hanks. You see Tom Hanks, you're like, I, I love it. Tom Hanks is in this. Tom yeah. Hanks is great. Please yeah, be you, Tom right. Hanks. Exactly. You know what to expect a little bit. So I, I take some of that to the roles in the game too, and I'm like, all right, when I want to bring a character to life, what is the thing that this character? Let's say you know the character is at a bar, and some drunk down the end of the bar is referring to my character. What's the most obvious thing that they're going to latch on to? Is it my character's speech pattern? Is it my character's posture? Is it my character's so it's clothes? Like that one thing I was talking about. Yeah, exactly. That one quirk. Right. What it, it's kind of like, it's, yeah, a quirk. It's and, a, and it's like a seed and, that you start and then with. That's, that's exactly. It's where you start. And then when other characters, you're like talking to them NPCs or other players, you have the opportunity. They're going to, of course, press on it. And mm-hmm. they're probably going to be impacted by how you show up. And if you show up with an accent and you're doing some kind of whatever you might be doing, then they're going to have them all laugh at that. And then you can riff with it you know yeah to your heart's content or not right and i think that that works really well for the kind of outgoing player who's like i want to you know show up and maybe show off a little bit and i'm a gregarious extrovert on the flip side of that coin i think for the introvert what can be really accessible to a character is to come up with the routine of the character you know like you think about not just the history but like the day-to-day what is this? Who is this person? What are the habits that they have? What are the things that they think? You know, how 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 do they build systems in their lives? Right? You know, what how do they manage their money? Where do they put stuff on their clothes? Do they keep a money pouch or do they hide it? You know, they're traveling. Do they get the the D and D equivalent of one of those travel wallets you wear under your shirt, or do they not care because they can defend themselves and they wear their their coin purse on their belt you know what does it look like you to just try to think about uh the given circumstances this is this is something i think that maybe if there's one thing i would roll all of this up into for how to approach a character how to bring it to life uh to take away from the bard school is what are the given circumstances of this character what are the circumstances that are given to them right before this moment you know, what happened to them What's 30 the, like, seconds ago? Like the scene. Setting. Yeah. What happened to them an hour ago? Okay. And you, how did they react to that yeah, situation? And, and, you know, I think what, that's a really... What mood are they in? Where did it leave like them? learning through play. Yeah. And, and those, those given like circumstances, you get to think of them, right? It's up to you. It's like a thought who, experiment. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a like, thought experiment. How would like this character react in this situation? Yeah, right. And just doing that, you can kind of be like, oh, okay. I kind of get an idea of who they are from how they would react. One of the things I love about the given circumstances, when you think about that from characters, this is something that I do with this game. It's one of the reasons I love this game is that it helps me get into a headset that's not my own, which I find personally very useful in day-to-day life. Being able to, in the the workspace, in social encounters, like, get into somebody else's head. You know, what are the given circumstances? Where did they come from? What are they thinking? What are they feeling? And and if I can do that with my character, and it's just a matter of like, I'll just take a little time and think, well, you know, what happened right before this? How are they feeling? Are they hungry? Why might that guy react this way? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. exactly. And it also kind of helps you with, you know, you tend to give people more benefit of the doubt because you're like, oh, you know, I don't know. You don't, you're like, you know, I don't know what's going on in their life. Right. I don't know their struggles. Right. You know, I could be the asshole. Which makes for interesting role play. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, should we talk a little bit about homebrew? I think we should touch on it a little bit. I think we'll probably cover homebrew just like alignment in another episode on its own because it's just a big meaty topic it to is. go through and it's fun to talk about. Um, and we could definitely mention some homebrew favorites. Uh, I think homebrew and character creation is something to consider. Obviously, the first thing to consider is DM approval. Because a lot of homebrew isn't totally balanced. Yep. And like we said earlier, a lot of the times we rush for the exotic stuff when there's so much you could do with the basics and to make it your own and make it really cool. 
Um, but sometimes homebrew is just that magic fit of what you were looking for yes. that you just couldn't find in the yes. core rule set. Like if you want to make Iron Man, there's there's some homebrew that can help you out. <laughs> there's a good alchemist homebrew out there. So the first thing with homebrew, if you're going to include it in your character, is talk to your DM. I mean, before we, you even get anywhere with it, say, "Hey, are you okay with me using this?" We have a we have a player at our at our table, and he also is a DM. And when he runs games, the group that he runs them with, and we're not part of it, which is totally good. But he runs them with only the core books, and they only use three five third third edition, you know, revised, yeah. I guess, you know, and and that's it, like no homebrew. Yep. I am on the I other side. You don't really need homebrew with three five. <laughs> yeah, true, <laughs> and, and you don't in, in the game generally. Like the game supports yeah. it, but I would say homebrew is just some idea somebody had that they wrote down. But I am in the other camp. I am very much of the camp of like homebrew is good. Use it. Have homebrew a conversation is, about it. It's the nature of the game. The game itself is homebrew. Right. It's like yes. so much of what we exactly. play was originally it was homebrew to begin with. Like. That's how the game was created. It was a bunch of guys putting together homebrew and right, testing it. Right. I mean, the nice thing now is you can put together some homebrew, go post it on Reddit, and get legitimate feedback on like the math of it, the balance. I mean, someone will probably be mean, but the majority of people there will like really help you kind of like crowdsource to make it better. And I've been really like seeing the change in quality of homebrew from like. I don't know, 10, 15 years ago to now is insane. Like you can hop on the discord of many things and people there will help you out. They'll take their own time to help you make your homebrew better just because they think it's cool to do. And you can hop on there and find high quality. The art's on there. It's great. And some of them are just as good almost as a real supplement in terms of the quality and balance. It's fantastic. I think the only call out about homebrew, aside from I strongly encourage it at everybody's game, is... As a player, just be conscious, DM to anybody at the game, not to use too much, right? Homebrew is yeah. just a much, just enough yep. for what feels right. Limit it. But, you know, you don't want to come in with, like, so much homebrew that it feels like a totally different game. And then you're game. going between all these different sources. Right. And, and then you're having all these systems that aren't meant to work together that may be incongruent or balanced, imbalanced when combined. Um, so I would say try to avoid adding too many new systems. Uh, try you know often it's better to find a new subclass or an archetype than an entire new character class Indeed. yeah um so like you know the less change to get the what you're looking for the better you know kind of find those linchpins that you can pull rather than trying to like redo from the ground up i think that covers it for what i want to say about character yeah. creation anything yeah. else you want to think we said more than enough well so good luck making your characters and until next time over now we'll see you later